there truly is a way out once an anorexic, not always an anorexic. There is freedom on the other side. There really is a pathway, whichever pathway you choose to have freedom from it. So many eating disorder sufferers that I met, that's the one thing that they just don't really believe is true. And it is, there really is freedom. And if you let this disease run its course and you die from it, you're not going to be able to do anything. You're not going to be able to have an impact on the world and you're not going to be able to do anything for the greater good. And you're definitely not going to be able to do anything healthfully for the greater good while you're sick. So allow that to be your bright guiding and shining light out of this. Let that come to the top of your heart and let that guide you. That's Dotsie Bausch. And this is the Ritual Podcast. The Ritual Podcast. We tend to think Olympic athletes, Olympic medalists live these perfect, charmed lives, genetically gifted, superior physical specimens, oozing talent that simply skyrockets them effortlessly onto the global stage. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is not the typical experience. In fact, I don't think that is any Olympian's experience, and it's definitely not the experience of this week's guest, an Olympic silver medalist with a most unlikely story, an almost unbelievably improbable story, and also a very human story, a story of struggle and pain, a pain that predicates her athletic accomplishments, provides a foundation for them, provides those accomplishments with a fundamental sense of purpose and meaning. My name is Rich Roll. It's raining out pretty heavily. Can you hear it on my rooftop here? Sorry about that if it's distracting, but that's neither here nor there because today I'm pleased to bring you a conversation with my friend Dotsie Bausch, a seven-time U.S. national champion, former world record holder, and two-time Pan American gold medal winner in track cycling, Dotsie earned silver at the 2012 London Olympics in an event called Team Pursuit. But here's the amazing thing. Not only was she a longtime vegetarian at that time, she's now vegan, she was almost 40 when she won that medal, the oldest ever in her discipline and one of the oldest athletes to ever compete in the Olympic Games. And all of that is extraordinary. It's awesome. It's amazing. But Honestly, what intrigues me the most about Dotsie is that hard-fought road she trudged to achieve such athletic heights because Dotsie's greatest achievements are not athletic. Her biggest victory came from resurrecting her own life from the depths of severe eating disorders, which threatened to take her life 20 years ago after a promising modeling career in New York City. That's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this week's guest. There's a ton more I want to say about Dotsie before we dive in. But first, I hope I can indulge you a bit because I have an announcement that I really want to make. As many of you guys know, about seven years ago, I released Finding Ultra, my first book. For those unfamiliar, it's a memoir. It's sort of a redemption story about addiction, sobriety, uh, middle-aged malaise, and ultimately plant-fueled feats of athletic prowess. Well, that book not only changed my life, it, it went on to have a really huge impact on a lot of people, more impact than I could have 
possibly imagined. And in fact, every year that book sells more copies than the year before. And I'm super proud of all of that. But over the last couple of years, I just, I couldn't shake this feeling that the book is incomplete because it failed to tell the whole story. Because in truth, what has transpired in my life since 2012, when that book came out, is equally, if not uh, more dramatic and perhaps more relatable. So I decided to rewrite it because I had so much more that I wanted to say. I've changed, I've evolved, and somehow the book felt lacking without bringing it up to date in that regard. So over the course of the past year, I completely overhauled it from page one. It's now 100 pages longer, and the new edition features about 30 to 40% brand new material. It's got a new foreword. It's got a new 50-page prescriptive chapter that chronicles my journey to present and also lays out all of the specific tools, practices, and strategies that I employed to transform my life, not just physically, but in mind, body, and spirit. Uh, it also has a robust recipe section, a seven-day eating plan. It has my cleanse protocol and also um, a robust and updated series of resource appendices to take your discovery further. And finally, uh, it's frankly just better writing throughout. Uh, I mean, you know what it's like to go back and read something you wrote six or seven years ago? So it's sort of like that. And I'll close by saying that ultimately, this is not a book about running. It's not about how to become a better triathlete. It's really a book for anyone, specifically those who, who feel stuck, because it's about refusing to settle for less. It's about the path towards a life fueled by meaning and purpose. It's about accessing untapped reservoirs of potential. It's about self-actualization. And, and really all told, it's about how to become our best, most authentic selves. And finally, I would say that it is now, after all of this, the book I always wanted it to be. So even if you read it and enjoyed the original version, I think you're gonna find the revised and updated edition more than worthy of your attention. And for those that enjoy audiobooks, I also re-recorded the entire thing with downloadable PDF files of all the new appendix materials, which is something the first edition unfortunately lacked. So if you have benefited from my free content over the years, it would mean the world to me if you trusted me with a purchase. It's now available from your favorite booksellers. On Amazon, I just checked earlier today, it's selling for only $7.67. So perhaps that's the best place to get it. And also signed copies are going to be available through my website. Uh, that's coming in the next couple of days. Perhaps by the time you're listening to that, that will be live. We're just configuring it all right now. In any event, Thanks for indulging me. I am really proud of this and so excited that it's now out in the world. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested, or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. 
Momentus products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S dot com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in Fleetfoot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go. And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but 
basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, Dotsie. Dotsie's so inspiring. Uh, Now retired, she's a public speaker. You should check out her TEDx talk. It's called Olympic Level Compassion. It's great. I'll link it up in the show notes. She mentors young women cyclists. She serves up color commentary duties for NBC Sports Network. And more importantly, she is a role model for women and men around the world in their battle to return to healthy eating and living habits as an ambassador for NEDA, the National Eating Disorders Association. But I know Dotsie through the vegan world, through the vegan athlete mafia, as a very staunch advocate for animal rights and the health benefits of plant-based eating for athletes and and anyone, really. She's also the force behind a recent anti-dairy campaign, a commercial campaign called Switch for Good, which features former Olympic athletes that ran, well, it sort of ran, but I'll let her tell that part of the story, uh, ran during the closing ceremonies of the recent Pyeongchang Winter Olympic Games. So this is a conversation about many things. It's about facing and overcoming an eating disorder so severe that it led her to a suicide attempt. It's about the nature of that disorder and the process that she undertook to rebuild her life from fashion model to athlete. And it's also about her most unlikely route to Olympic glory. It's about eating plant-based for performance and it's about advocacy, what it means to live in service to your ideals. Dotsie was delightful, super engaging. I adore her. I love this conversation and I hope you do too. So let's talk to her. All right, Dotsie, so nice to see you. Thanks for coming up all the way from Irvine to do the podcast. This is a long time in the making. So I'm delighted to talk to you today. Thank you very much for having me. It was an easy drive. We'll see how the way home goes. I know, it might be a little bit different going back, but uh, you're here now and I'm gonna hold you prisoner for a little while. So (laughs) cool, so many things to talk about, but I think the most kind of uh, top of mind thing is this anti-dairy ad that uh, you worked on with a bunch of other Olympic athletes uh, that was intended to air during the closing ceremonies of Pyeongchang. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so, well, the campaign itself is called Switch for Good. Uh, And the, you know, kind of the inspiration um, for me was I was just sitting on the couch uh, watching Olympic trials, like probably, you know, two and a half months ago now. And um, the Milk Life ad came on. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The Dairy Board is a sponsor of the US Olympic Committee. And it says nine out of 10 uh, Olympians grew up drinking milk which is probably true because right. our grandparents- Because probably nine out of 10 people grew up right, drinking milk. Right. And people are all saying yeah. all sorts of things like, so did nine out of 10 serial killers. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, clearly that's just wildly misleading in terms of what you drink when you're growing up has anything to do with whether you're gonna become an Olympian or not. Um, and then it says that milk has um, natural proteins as if there's any other kinds and balanced nutrition in the ad. and. Mm-hmm. My blood just started boiling. I mean, I just thought that just for truth's sake alone, we have to answer this. This isn't truthful advertising. Well, right, welcome to Advertising 101. But uh, it just, it just, yeah, it made, it made my heart hurt and it made me mad. And I, 
I just, uh, I started thinking, okay, what, what, how do we answer this in a really intelligent, um, backed up by science uh, way with uh, a group of Olympians, because that's the best way to answer it, uh, who, are, who are telling the truth and have really interesting stories to tell about mm-hmm. their dairy-free lifestyles. So we just, um, we went to work and we whipped this puppy together in a really short period of time. Yeah. And Louis, <laughs> you got Louis involved, right? So he directed it? He did, yes. Yeah. Yes, Louis Facios, the director of The Cove. So uh-huh. yeah, that was... Just, uh, I had worked with him on the Game Changers, so I, I, I knew him and, and was used to his style and his directing style. Um, but he's, uh, yeah, he's mesmerizing to, to, to be in action with, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. So I saw it, it's on YouTube. Um, Adweek picked it up, there was a lot of press around it. And I know you did like a, a Twitter chat the other night that I chimed in on for a moment and I shared that on my social media. Um, and it's cool because when you think about the power of the dairy lobby on the consciousness of the average consumer, it's, it's kind of astonishing. I mean, it's sort of diabolically genius the way they've been able to infiltrate their message across the board in public institutions. I mean, there's posters in public high schools that say milk does a body good with guys bench pressing and milk mustaches. And then they get involved in the sports community by sponsoring at a very high level, things like the Olympics. I know they're a title sponsor of, I believe, um, Ironman, I think, or triathlon. They are built with They're very integrated into the endurance community. And they've done an amazing job of sponsoring athletes to get behind this. And so if you follow many an athlete on Instagram, you'll see them doing ads for chocolate milk, which has been, they sort of figured out a way to position as some kind of athletic recovery boosting elixir, which is kind of insane. Um, and I don't begrudge these athletes who are trying to make a living, you know, just trying to pay their bills who get involved with this. But when you kind of stand back and look at it from 10,000 feet, you're like, what is going on here? Yeah, well, I mean, other Olympic sponsors are McDonald's and Coca-Cola. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so you, you know, know follow like, the dollar bills, uh-huh. that's all you ever have to do. Have you been um, to the, you've probably been to Colorado Springs, right? To the training oh, center? Oh, sure, oh yeah. 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 I was yeah. there, I couldn't believe what, That's I think they've improved cafeteria. it this past year. I saw a news piece about um, they've gotten much better with the food that they're serving. But it's a bit better. It's kind of insane. been back since I was, I was training. I was there even. like a year and a half, two years ago, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah, it's a bit I couldn't better. believe it. But there's an actual entire McDonald's restaurant inside of the eating facility in the Athletes Village mm-hmm. at and it's free, Games. right? It's free for yes, athletes. Yes, yes, yeah. And I mean, sadly, the entire Eastern Block is in line because it's, free McDonald's. We're like, oh, gross. Or, you know, we have McDonald's, but, and it's cheap here, but it's, it's this, it's the saddest thing you've ever seen. Just that, that, just that total mind bender on, you know, you're at the Olympics. I mean, you're, 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 you're pretty sure (laughs) that all these Ferraris lined up to put sludge into their engines. Nastiest. Yeah. Yeah. It's so crazy. Um, all right, so this PSA, so tell me about uh, the impact of this. Like the, what happened here? Yeah, so well, we're- <laughs> A little bit of a yeah, snafu, we're a little right? hiccup <laughs> to, call, to say the least. Um, 
uh, so we're, we're just 48 hours in at, at, as of mm-hmm. today. Uh, Media-wise, so far we have, we're at like 25 million impressions and in 48 mm. hours, 35,000 views on YouTube. So we're, we're going well off broad, uh, broadcast, right. broad, broadcast television, but uh, uh, we had a bit of a snafu the, the night that it was supposed to air on closing ceremonies um, at 7.15, uh, the, the USOC was able to get it pulled from NBC because they're a client of NBC's and follow the dollar bills again uh, uh, because they said it was a, um, a direct attack on one of their sponsors. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was an Olympic IP issue that they saw in the final card of the of the commercial. Uh, so um, that is that is what it is. Yeah. So we, it's not surprising, right? I mean, I'm right, sure you could have right. foreseen this, right? Once they get wise to what's going on, like their, their bottom line is being threatened by this. It's in, it's in conflict with their leading sponsor or a leading sponsor. But the good news is there's something called the internet. You know, and there's a there's a there's a way to still get the message out, and I think it is getting out. So I think it's cool. It's a first stab at counter programming, and there's a story in and of itself. The fact that it got pulled can create a new story exactly. that can create additional interest in what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, because just like you know the the early years of tobacco, a, as they went along, you know, people started realizing something was being hidden from them, mm-hmm. and people get pissed when they realize like there something's being yeah. hidden and someone's lying. Did you today. get were, were you on the receiving end of a little backlash online? No, or? no, 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 not yet. Didn't no, ours like has it. been really positive, but what I'm saying is is now that we're bringing forward how dangerous dairy is and that it's not a health food, it is not a health food like they are saying it is. Uh, and we have many of these really inspires inspiring anecdotal stories and a lot of science backing it up. People, the general public, as they look deeper because they have something like the internet, like mm-hmm. you said, they're gonna start looking deeper and they're gonna start realizing that they've been lied to, that dairy is a health food mm-hmm. and it makes for strong bones and that it's good for you. And that, and people aren't gonna like that. So that's yeah. good. Yeah, that know? is good, that is good. So the athletes, you, you got Rebecca Sony, who's mm-hmm. a friend. Yeah. Uh, Kendrick Ferris, yes. who else is in the spot? Yeah, um, yeah. Th- those two are both just amazing. Mm-hmm. I love their individual stories. Uh, Siba Johnson, who is um, the first African American ski racer in in history, also the youngest ski racer ever. Um, oh. She uh, is vegan since birth, so she's never had a glass of milk. And in her ski racing career, she never broke a bone. Mm. And I don't even know a ski racer that hasn't broken. Yeah, a bone. I would I imagine <laughs> most of them have yeah. broken a bone yeah. at some point. She did after her ski racing career in a very bad accident, but in her ski racing career, she she's never never broke a bone. Uh-huh. Uh, Kara Lang, who's a Canadian uh, soccer player and a mom, she's got a great story. Um, Malachi Davis, who's um, a sprinter, was a sprinter for Great Britain, two thousand four. Uh huh. Yeah. And Kendrick is a weightlifter. Yes. Olympic weightlifter. Did he, did he, I can't remember, did he medal? Did he No, win? but he was seventh. He was seventh. He did quite uh-huh. well. He was the only US um, male weightlifter to qualify mm. for Rio. So he was the the only one that went that went. Right. I, people don't really realize. I don't think that you countries have to qualify their spot for Olympic Games, and then the country themselves, the coaches pick who will fill that spot, which is not always the person that qualifies the spot. Right. In it is in weightlifting for him, but in other sports, which is lots of layers of politics that people don't necessarily realize goes on. Yeah. Uh, but you have to qualify the spot. It's not like just because you know you're a country, a big country, that you just you know automatically go to the Olympics. That's not the way it works. Right. 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 Got Got it. All right, cool. Well, let's let's take it back. I mean, there's so many layers to your story. It's an amazing story. I mean, you're you're quite an unlikely Olympian in some yeah. regards. You know, I mean, 
you were that was not the trajectory that you were headed on as a young person. You know, most people who end up at the Olympics are people who've been harboring that dream, you know, since they were an infant, just dreaming of being on that podium. But you were living a very different life as a young person. Just a wee bit. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. I didn't I mean you did sports, right? You did you rode crew in college. I did for yeah. like a year until it was like messing up my my party scene because you right. have to get up at four thirty in the morning. But um and I did I grew up in Kentucky, so I grew up riding horses. But mm-hmm. you know, the horse is the athlete, not you. But I did grow up in like a competitive I had a competitive nature about me and I, you know, competed um, in saddlebred horse riding from a young age. So I think I had that part of me and my emotions in my mind that, you know, really um, loved the competition aspect. But then I, uh, through high school and college, um, it just kind of got, a, got away from it and definitely went wayward. I mean, it, yeah. was, it, was, a, it, was, a, it was a deep dive into um, the underbelly of New York City and the modeling yeah, world. I, uh, and I'm familiar and... with that underbelly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> let's let's explore that a little bit. I mean, you know, something that I can relate to in your story is, you know, you're in college, you're an athlete, and at some point the veneer fades with the early morning workouts and all of that, and mm-hmm. there's this social partying life that kind of enters and starts to take center stage. So. I, I'm projecting on you, but I'm presuming that at some point in college, this is what was this is what was happening. Yeah, yeah. I, it was it was it was. I was kind of living two lives because I I uh, I got okay grades in high school, but I really really loved college because you're finally you know learning you're and free. doing what you're free. But in in school in the actual classes, like you're doing what you're interested in, right? Right. So you're not. So I I I was getting really great rate great grades and studying really hard and loving my classes, and then at the same time, um, just that part of me that I think felt like I you know, hadn't been able to be let out of my shell before mm-hmm. um, was, had the ability to, to do that in a way like, like never before, which, you know, almost every single person that's gone to college has experienced yeah. that. It's not like that's a rare finding. But. I mean, growing up, were you like, what kind of an environment was your family situation? I grew up in a, a pretty traditional, like Midwest, um, solid family, like mm-hmm. great, just yeah, no. no so it wasn't like you're rebelling there. against your parents or no, anything no, like no. I know that we're we were close. We're still close. That yeah, that time was friggin' rough for them. Yeah. Uh, especially as I got more and more towards um, my deathbed when I got really really sick um, with anorexia. Because uh, by that point I was. Um, you know, 20, 21, I'm not, I, they don't have any control, right? I'm not yeah. 10, there, there was really nothing they could do. They tried some interventions that were uh, very unsuccessful. So uh, yeah, it was, um, it, was, it was really tough for them. Mm-hmm. Well, addiction, alcoholism, you know, these uh, sobriety, recovery, these are, you know, constant themes of my podcast. And I've had plenty mm-hmm. of people come in and share their experience, strength and hope in this regard, but I've never had, anybody on to share about eating disorders. Um, And there's been a lot of people who've been wanting me to explore this um, topic, this subject matter uh, on the show. So I'm really glad to have you here because I think your story um, is very powerful and and what what you had to face and kind of how dark it got and how you overcame it is pretty empowering. So where does it where does that begin? Where does the dysfunctional relationship with food start mm-hmm. to start to enter your life? Well, it starts with a dysfunctional relationship with yourself. Um, you said you've had a lot of people on that have had um, drug addiction, mm-hmm. su- suffered from alcohol alcoholism and alcohol abuse, um, and it's it's really 
not too dissimilar. It it is a a clinically recognized disease. It is an illness, and it's really whatever. Most of those people probably told you about some kind of issue that they were grappling with, and then they tried a drug or they drank too much, and they realized that they could, uh, you know, escape or fall into an you know ulterior universe and 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 leave that pain that they were in. Eating disorders really exactly the same route. Mm-hmm. I was in a significant amount of uh, pain in my life in confusion and fear. Uh, part of it was stemming from, uh, I felt like a real lack of control as I was graduating college. I had majored in journalism and thought I wanted to go into hard news and realized at the very end of college in my internship, that I hated it. And and that was one of the first times I recognized how much control big business has over everything that we do. It had a lot of control over news. This is Philadelphia, mm-hmm. uh, KYW. And it was like, wow, uh, I don't want to do this. You know, it, it's going to, it's controlled the whole time. And so I was freaking out that I, what, what I had just studied and majored in, in college, like, what was I going to do with my life? So I, I started to, um, it, it just very much started kind of slowly in the beginning where I just started to assert some control over my food restriction because it's really, really hard to starve yourself. I mean, you know, and that made me feel powerful empowered. and empowered. One that, thing that you can control. Absolutely, and you can, right? Mm-hmm. You 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 do. You have the ultimate control over what what goes in, and 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 you're eating. It sounds like kind of you know almost meaningless or trivial, but it 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 really started to make me feel like I had everything under control. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, how old were you at this time? Um, nineteen. Nineteen. Yeah. And is there kind of a euphoria that's associated with that, like in the same way that you get a hit from absolutely you know, cocaine? Yeah, or it's better because like I did a lot of cocaine. It's it it, it there. Yeah, and, and there's there's some there's some aspects of this that in my life I've been um, a little careful with talking about because anybody that is in the midst of an of an eating disorder in the throes of the suffering, uh, just as I did, will tend to. Uh, use some of these ideas that I'm presenting to to, to fuel. Uh, so I, I like to be kind of careful with the the um, uh, celebrating it, if you will, in mm-hmm. a way where it, yeah, it was a high. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, it's when when you're when you're starving yourself, you there you hit a point where um, you uh, feel like you're on a substance um, and you're kind of floaty and very. Uh, very, I mean, your brain isn't working. I mean, you know, you're, you're, every every aspect, every organ is being starved. So things start to shut down at the at, towards the end, and that what was what was happening to me. Your your body starts to eat its own organs. I mean, you know, it yeah. will do anything to stay alive. So your brain is an organ. But I think it's important to acknowledge the fact that you know it it if it didn't work for a while, you wouldn't keep doing it. Like it works until it stops working, right? So one of the first sort of things to confront is just acceptance or acknowledgement of the fact that it was doing something for you, right? And that's what fueled yeah. you to to continue or to dive deeper into it. Yes. I mean, I don't wanna trigger anyone either, but right. I think like developing an understanding of how powerful it is and how it really did give you a sense of control in a, in a, you know, in the midst of this, um, you know, feeling of powerlessness that you were experiencing is, I think, is important to recognize. Yeah, no, you're right, and and then conversely, uh, you know, discussing the 
the true power that comes with freedom and, and being well is, mm-hmm. you know, that that there there is no comparison from now to then as far as the actual power that I feel in my life now. Of but course. that is um you know, it's a it, it, it's a dark, scary place that you keep chasing, just like you do a drug, because you want that feeling again. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very that's but again. But it becomes more and more difficult to access that feeling, right? In the same way that you become tolerant to a drug. Mm, it, well, you just start eating less and less, yeah. right? So <laughs> it, you're, you're chasing it, and then you get to the point where, obviously, if you're not eating anything, then then you're you know you're hospitalized, and then mm-hmm. you know the whole whole yeah. Right. But yeah, you you do chase all the way until where you're it says you're at zero calories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this begins in the early stages of you sort of attempting to pursue a career in journalism, but at some point modeling enters and and it's almost like a perfect storm, this confluence of of the New York modeling world, you know, <laughs> uh, converging with eating disorders and you know this fast-paced lifestyle that's a perfect recipe to really, you know, dismantle you. Yeah, I I no doubt. I mean, there wasn't any aspect of the modeling world that was necessarily fueling it. Uh, you know, I really had uh, my own deep-seated reasons and was really pretty far into my eating disorder um, by the time that I was mm. modeling in New York. But I, I had just started modeling in the late part of college in Philadelphia and and then um, moved to New York with an agency. And it was just like, okay, well, you know, for me, it was like, well, this is interesting for a while. Like mm-hmm. we'll travel some. And you know, it was like, it just was, you know, happening. Right. Uh, but it wasn't anything that was you know, single-handedly fueling me to get skinnier. And I didn't really have any kind of, um, you know, kind of outwardly connections with what I looked like or if there was fat here or there, or if my butt was big or not. It wasn't, uh, so many people think that it's really just an exterior view of yourself and, you know, you have body dysmorphic disorder. You know, Mm -hmm. most people do. I probably did, but it wasn't, uh, it it wasn't outward facing at all for me. Mm. It was just the continuing to assert this control. That's interesting because I would imagine that you were surrounded by plenty of enablers who are saying, look, you got to get skinnier if you want to book this job or, or what have you, and surrounded by a community of people you know, other models who are trying to be as skinny as possible, right? Yeah, yeah. One thing about that I f- found in, in in the modeling industry, I mostly did, I'm not that photogenic, I mostly did runway, um, is that, and so especially the runway models, uh, they're f- complete freaks of nature. Yes, there's those that have eating disorders and are starving themselves. And, you know, I, clearly we, we've heard those stories, but by and large, these people are, they come out of the womb that way. Their, 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 their whole makeup, it doesn't make any sense. They eat whatever they want to eat, whenever they want to eat it. They eat at McDonald's all the time and they just look like that. These bizarre it's, creatures. Yes, <laughs> it's wildly frustrating, yeah. but it's true. You know, they're not mm. all just not eating. There are many, many, many of them that I would travel with. It's like they had very normal eating and they ate crap, uh, which wasn't great, but, and it just, it wouldn't show up anywhere. Mm-hmm. But nothing shows up anywhere on you when you're 16 or 17 or 18, 19 anyway, so. Right. And and are you keeping this a secret, like living this yeah. private, you know, double life where you're hiding all of this kind of behavior? And yeah, was it, it bule- a, was it bulimia also, or towards the end it was bulimia? Yeah. yeah, where you kind of your body just well, really, I guess it's more your mind sort of snaps into this realization that you're starving, and but then you eat, and then you can't 
deal with that, what that feels right. like and looks like and is. So, um, yeah. And maybe I think it would be instructive for somebody who's unfamiliar with this, or, or maybe somebody who's listening, who has somebody in their life who suffers or is, you know, has suffered from this to maybe bust a few myths. Like what do people misunderstand or not get about what this disorder is all about? Yeah, that's a great point. Like for parents and, and mm -hmm. friends and family, that question, I get at that, asked that question a lot. And I think the most, um, the biggest myth is that it is, uh, uh, you know, exterior facing and that if you talk about to the person, um, you're, too skinny or you're looking skinny Explain or you're too fat. Yeah. yeah. Or just even using those terms as if you're looking at the person as just the only thing that's important about them as if is if they're skinny or fat. Mm -hmm. So completely removing that rhetoric and talking to them from a place of love and concern about their their health, right? And their and just their ability to to be in uh, society and in the world and and what their talents are. So remove that language and also so many people, every person really that doesn't understand an eating disorder is just like Lucy can you just eat Snap a cheeseburger? Yeah. yeah, like just eat a cheeseburger, it'll be better. It'll right. be so much better if you just do that because we have to eat food every day, all day long. So unlike drugs or alcohol, where you do have to just completely remove that, right? Mm -hmm. you, you you know, in three hours you have to eat yeah, again. it's so, harder because you have yeah. to completely, you know, reframe your relationship with this thing that you need to survive. Yes, yeah, so if, if family members, you know, you have that said to you, you know, if you just, can you just eat a little something? So. That is, an, is another thing that people need to to, to dive in and, and learn a bit more about what eating disorders actually are mm -hmm. and, and come to the person with a place of love and not mention how they look and not mention what they're eating. That's not what's going on. Really think of it maybe as a um, disease like an alcoholism and, and that helps people to reframe the reference because then they understand, they understand alcoholism. Most people are like, okay, yeah, I get that. That's... but and they go, oh, that's the same type of psychology, then it helps them to frame speaking to a friend or family about their eating disorder. Yeah, it's a very interesting and bizarre psychological framework because, you know, look, just from my own experience as a recovering alcoholic, for many years, I knew I was an alcoholic and I knew what I was doing was destroying my life. I was powerless to change it but I had the self-awareness. And I would imagine yourself or somebody who's struggling with an eating disorder has some version of that self-awareness along the way, but there's this weird twist, which is the body dysmorphia and the bizarre, very strange psychological, um, you know, twist that comes with that, which is you're looking in the mirror and you're, you're, what's being reflected back to you is not reality. Like your perception mm -hmm. of what you look like is so twisted and divorced from what is actually true. That is that yeah. is like very hard for somebody to relate to or understand. Yeah, it, it is. I think you know, in in your subconscious, I think that you are a bit aware of. I, you know, it's like I would have like moments of clarity where it was like, oh yeah, I'm really sick. 
this is really bad. This is not like why, you know, now these pants aren't even fitting. You know, is it like, oh, 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 what happened? That was just like a week ago. But then you you sort of snap out of that and you're, mm-hmm. and you're back into your then reality that you're, that everything's fine. And you don't, you don't really think that you're sick from anything. I mean, it, most of the time it's like, you know, no, th- th- this is normal. This is fueling me. This is, this is what mm-hmm. I want it to be. And, and for me, again, it wasn't like, wasn't connected to the mirror. For me, it went from a feeling of wanting to be in control to a feeling of, I wanted to disappear from the planet. I didn't want anyone looking at me. I didn't want any attention. I didn't want people talking about me or how I looked because being in the modeling industry, that would be you know a common conversation, right? Um, I got to where I wanted to get so small that I would disappear off the, the planet. Well, a couple observations about that. First of all, you're in a profession that is the antithesis of that. And ironically, the the more you shrink, the more attention you're drawing to yourself out of concern from others, right? Like Yeah, but not on the street, right? Because you're not you're you know, you you get wildly unattractive. I mean, my hair was turning gray. It was falling out. My teeth were turning black. Like you get pretty gnarly there towards, you know, it, it, well, whatever. Well, you're you going to get a different kind so, of attention. Like yeah. people are going to look at you strange on the street. Like, well, yeah. Or they just don't notice. I mean, I had mm. a lot of like people just started, stopped noticing. I, I didn't like being gawked at by whatever, the a construction worker in New York City or whatever they were doing. And, you know, and I, I, I started feeling like I wanted to disappear and it was a way to disappear. Mm-hmm. People stopped noticing me. And it worked. Did you do that thing where you look in the mirror and you pinch your skin and think that that's fat that has to be lost no. when you're, you didn't no. do that? That's yeah. a common thing, though, right? I think it's less common than we than we think it is. I mean, mm. I, I, you know, yes, yeah, some people it's it's just a direct relation to, um, you know, what they're looking at in the mirror. But if the people that are pinching their skin and going, I have to get rid of that. They're, they're, they're dealing with a lot of inner pain, a lot of self-hatred, right? And, yeah. and beating themselves up for Shame. so many more reasons than just that fold of skin that they're pinching. Right. It's gotta be a very painful, lonely place to be in, I would imagine. Yeah, just like you. I mean, you know that, you know yeah, that space. Yeah, yeah it's, um, uh, it is, and you thrive off of it for a while until you don't. Yeah, it has yeah. its own energy mm-hmm. to it, I think. Mm-hmm. So. What's the, where where do you hit bottom with this? I mean, you get down to like 90 pounds, a hundred pounds or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I got, I got below that. Um, I tried to kill myself. So that, that was a, that was a ran out in traffic on the 76th freeway in the middle of the night. How old um, were you when that happened? 20, 22, I guess. 22, was that yeah, in New York? So 21, 22. Not in, no, I not think in New York? And, um, no, 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 uh, I was back in Philly. Uh-huh. I, I went, went back and forth for um, a while um, and, you know, obviously it didn't work. So, but that was rock bottom for me. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye. And I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made. And that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton. 
Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So how do you then begin to pick up the pieces? I mean, what what is the what is the process of addressing this look like for you? Um, you know, I had this this uh this moment where I I I really clearly remember seeing a fork in the road. I knew that if I kept going, that I was going to die from this and I was going to get so deep down that road that I wasn't able to pull back out and it was going to take my life. And that was a sobering moment of what, who would, would do that to 
the few people I had in my life that really loved and cared for me at that period of time. And I always say to people, you know, yes, eventual recovery have to, has to come from within, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that first catalyst. And for me, it was, it was my family. I thought, I can't die. Like that's so, mm-hmm. that's so lame on my part for them. It's so wildly selfish. So I know I'm not gonna get, get better, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna try a little bit because mm-hmm. I have to at least show them that I tried. And then if I die, hopefully they won't be as sad. Be, I mean, you know, you think of the craziest shit, right? When you, but that's what I was thinking. I mean, just going to show them some effort. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I started trying to get better. And that sense of self hatred, that that feeling, that that desire to disappear, like, w- yeah. where do you think that comes from? I mean, growing up with parents that love you, it's not like oh, I was abused. You know, I think that's another thing people struggle with struggle with really understanding like oh well there must have been some incident in your childhood or something like that right. it doesn't necessarily have to be connected to something no. like that 30 30 to 35% of eating disorder sufferers had it was a severe abuse in their early childhood years so mm-hmm. it's that's extremely yeah that's common. a real thing but it's not yes. necessarily determinative yeah right right but i mean that's it is common as what you know so there and there there was there was none of that uh in 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 my life at all. And I don't, you know, I think some of it has to do with just the, you know, the makeup of, of who we are. I'm an extreme introvert, which no one believes, but uh, I, I, I am. And I, to this day- That is hard to believe. I know. <laughs> but if you really understand, you know, yeah. introversion, extroversion, uh-huh. you know, it's, it's not just like, oh, I don't like to talk or something. It's, I have so um, many charismatic people that come on this podcast and, and explain to me how they're so introverted. And I always have the same reaction. Right, but it's not as <laughs> yeah. anything to do with charisma, yeah. right? It's how we, we kind of recharge. But I, I, I think that I just, um, to this day, I really, I would like to just, live out in the middle of nowhere on a farm with like 200 animals and never speak or see anyone ever mm-hmm. again. Like a, I have a deep desire for that, but I know that that's not how I'm gonna save any animals. So that's a consistent I think that's, theme with alcoholics too, that, that okay. like desire to isolate, you know, to cut yourself off. Yeah, so I think that's, it was my personality that was just coming through mm-hmm. back then as it does now, but I'm able to say, Okay, well, no, you're gonna you're making a conscious decision to not go, you know, isolate because uh, I don't think I can do much good if I isolate. Uh, but 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 back then that was you know I think that's really more w- what it what it was. Mm-hmm. And so did your parents? I mean, your parents must have been terrified. Terrified. Yeah. I so mean, did they just get, they're trying to help you beyond. Yeah, and they're doing interventions. My mom flew to Philadelphia to do one intervention that I distinctly remember, and I ended up. Um, I don't have very many regrets in my life. This is one of them. I took her to the Philadelphia airport. I don't even think she had a ticket. Like I just didn't want any of this to be happening. Mm -hmm. And I literally physically threw my mother out on the street corner at the airport. Like what, who does that? That's the power of, that's that's addiction in a nutshell. It's like, it's not you, you know, it's a, it's a behavior, it's a demonic behavior that's being driven by this disease that's compelling Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. in a way that transcends, you know, who you fundamentally are as a human being. Yeah. You're at complete outer body. I was so sick by then. Um, It is demonic and it, it is completely outer body. Like I, 
now it feels like that was another human being that I I, I can't relate to. And mm-hmm. and it's, a, you know, and she still loves me. The, my mom, you know, that that's also, that took a long time to um, process through of, of why she would, would still, she just kept coming back. She just kept loving hard. Mm-hmm. So you get to this point after this, you know, sort of failed suicide attempt where you have the willingness to, you know, finally accept help. So what does that help look like? Well, it it wasn't great in the beginning uh, because I was, you know, I had been like in and out of, of, you know, like rehab facilities and, and group facilities and things like that early on that I didn't, you know, was not successful because I didn't want to be there. Um, but I went through a few therapists that uh, I didn't connect with, I guess you'd just say, you know, it wasn't the right, wasn't, wasn't the right, we're going to be the right people. Um, so I had moved out to LA. Uh, by this point, I was doing um, production for um, commercials and music videos back mm-hmm. when those were a thing. <laughs> <That> was, uh, <laughs> people actually did that. <laughs> no. Um, and so we, we came out from um, uh, the East Coast to do a three-week job here in LA. And it was like the middle of January. And I was like, is this 78 sunny thing? Like, is this, is this normal? <laughs> Everybody's like, oh yeah, it's always <laughs> like this. And I was like, okay. So I just moved. I, I, mm. I was like, this is insane. And I, I hate cold weather and, and really just living in New York city anyway. So I moved out and um, I just came upon um, like a little teeny tiny ad in a newspaper, in a coffee shop that there was going to be a speaker on fear in the basement of a Borders bookstore. Hmm. I mean, random. That is, yeah. And went down to listen to her speak. And uh, I, I just went up to her afterwards and I said, I, you know, can, can you help me? She was phenomenal. Um, she was a shrink? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She, did, she does a lot of fear-based work. Was very busy after 9-11 when nobody would get on a plane because they're, uh, but a lot of, what was inside of me was was fear, really, mm-hmm. right? You realize it, uh, and you and you learn that at the at the end of it all. So um, we got to work, and she was, yeah, she blew my mind. What's interesting about that is that you're you're the one who made the decision, right? It was it was yes. your own willingness and impetus to like seek this person out and and pursue mm-hmm. her as opposed to somebody trying to compel you to do that. Yep. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's it. I and mean, you can't manufacture. You were ready when you were ready. Yeah, and that's the hardest part for for mm. families of someone who's suffering from an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. I do a, a free mentorship program, so I just you know I've walked down the road with a, a lot of eating disorder sufferers, just as somebody who's been in their shoes and encouraged. And I get a lot of um, uh, outreach from uh, friends and family that are just they're just so desperate. Uh, and 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 it's so hard for them to just really let it sink in that they can't do anything until the person's ready. That's yeah. with everything. That's with every. It's alcohol at all, and it's just. But it's so in your face uh, with addiction. Right? Yeah, it's so because you can just yeah. see it. It's like yeah, you cannot compel somebody to be willing. They have to be willing themselves. They've got to walk this path until they're ready, and until they're ready, it's not going to stick. And that's a sense of powerlessness that the loved one of the addict has to embrace. And that's a very difficult thing. Mm, you know, my parents went difficult. through it, your parents had to go through that, you know, yeah. it's, it's an awful, 
place to be because you can see the, the healthy path forward so clearly and it's so confounding and confusing and painful to watch as somebody self-destructs right in front of you yeah. and you know what the answer is. I know, I know, yeah. So you find this person and what was it about her that worked for you? Like what, what was her process of yeah. trying to unpack this? She put me to work. The, every other therapist and psychologist that I had seen before, you know, would sit in the chair opposite me with their yellow legal pad and their, you know, cool pen and would just be writing a lot and go, mm, okay, uh-huh, well, well, let's dive deeper into that, yeah. mm -hmm, okay, well, <laughs> and they're writing. I'm like, what the fuck are you writing? You know, <laughs> and, and this therapist, her name's Chris, um, from almost, the third time I saw her, I mean, she spent a couple of, of sessions like trying to, you know, hear my story, right? Mm -hmm. um, she put me to work and I, I, I'm, I'm very coachable. I, I like to work and I like, I like tools and I like steps and I like uh, ways of doing things. And she was very action oriented. Nobody that early, especially in my therapy had said, okay, this is, th this is your work. She was, her, her basis was, was, was meditation therapy. So, um, putting me to work would look things like, okay, um, when you are at this point, I'm, I'm deep into the bulimia cause we're, we're, you know, we're towards the mm -hmm. end. And so, so, um, she said, okay, when you are having the urge, um, you're going to go for, first of all, you're going to go to the store and you're going to buy little blue dots on sticky papers that you can, you know, little sticky blue dots, um, from the drugstore and you're going to place them on your trigger areas. And so, uh, let's say, the refrigerator is, you know, okay, a trigger. You're gonna if you're gonna binge and purge. You see the blue dot. You have to, and I won't go into details, but you ha you have to stop. You have to do this very specific thirty second meditation, uh, and it, it would walk through a, a series of questions that I had to ask myself and answer. Um, and if you still wanted to to binge, and this would be the same thing with the blue dot on the toilet, if I was gonna purge, you can go ahead and do it. You have mm. complete freedom. Go ahead and binge. But first, you've got to do this. First, you thing. have to do right. this work. Well, you can imagine how it that progressed. You know, I, I was you know sitting in front of the refrigerator meditating for an hour mm. before then I would decide, uh, and then eventually you decide. I think I can, I think I cannot do that mm. today. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know how tomorrow is going to go, but for today. So that's just an, you know just one example of all the different types of of, was of there work like, and tools, like a visualization or like a like a mantra based not mantra but like some sort of thing that you would tell yourself. Like a story or no, whatever. No, it was as part more. It was more uh, accessing what I was feeling, which I never accessed before, because that's mm -hmm. what you do as an addict, right? Whether it's 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 drugs or an eating disorder, which were you know both poisons for me. Um, you're you're all you're doing that to get a high to not feel what you're actually feeling. Right. So it was accessing first. It was just accessing where am I feeling anything. Is it in my right fingertip of my pointer finger? Is it in my foot? Is it in my gut? Is it in my chest? Where do you, where do you feel it? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How big is it? Is it does it feel sore? Does it feel sharp? Does it feel you know painful? Uh, what is it? What does it look like? What does it feel like? So that was like at the beginning. I you know when I did that meditation with her before I would have to do it on my own. I'm thinking this woman is cray cray. Yeah. Like what, you know, because you're so violently disconnected from yourself when you start getting better, when you start this, this, this work. And 
to start to connect with that was like, it, it just it just felt nutty in the beginning. Yeah, but that's the process of integrating because yes, the, the fridge is the trigger and you have the blue dot on the fridge, but the trigger isn't really the fridge. It's mm -hmm. the emotions that the fridge catalyzes within yourself. Exactly. And learning what those are, where they come from and what they're about and what's behind them is the process of, of rebuilding yourself and recovering. Right, Yeah. right, yeah. And yeah, she's- Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, she's remarkable. It's the first first one that 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 ever even went in that in that direction. And a, a lot of times, I would access uh, painful different types of anger. And uh, she had this this anger stick that she had me made, and it was just a a bath towel that we'd rolled up to like a snake and put rubber bands about two inches apart all the way down the bath towel. Mm -hmm. And I had this literal like. You, you, I would get on my knees and slap the anger towel on the ground over and over and over again. I mean, I'm glad I don't have any video of this. Um, <laughs> to release that anger that I couldn't figure out what to do with. I mean, it was just brilliant stuff in my opinion. It, mm -hmm. it, it, it was a completely different person after releasing that anger. Okay, we got to put it somewhere. Otherwise I'm going to binge and purge right. or go out for the night and, you know, do whatever. Um, it, yeah, it was, it was, it, it was amazing. Well, I fun, still have the anger towel. Fun. If you oh, want to you borrow do? it. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, how often do you use it? <laughs> I don't anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but what's cool about that is the, uh, the fundamental difference between, you know, sort of traditional therapy of like, well, let's just talk forever versus very proactive behavior faced, action based, you know, tactile things that you can actually do that will begin to shift your awareness and create new neural pathways and connect you with yourself and, and develop that self-awareness, but in a way that is mm -hmm. actually propelling you in a different direction because it's behavior-based. I know, interesting. it really is. You, I mean, we've all known people that have been in therapy for like forever. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just one person and this was just my one experience and it, sometimes other types of therapy work for people, yeah. but it, so, sometimes I'm like, oh man, you know, it's like you, you got you got to get down, you got to get dirty and gritty and mm -hmm. dive into, you know, really. I, I would just go insane if it was if I was like still in therapy. Yeah, you know, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, you yeah. know, you can always access some of it. I, you know, I've done some, you know, uh, emergency phone calls to her throughout my life, <laughs> but but because we did all of that super solid work, I never have one inkling of a fear that I could ever go back into my eating disorder again. I always have like, no, I, I, did, I did way too much work. It's not even possible. And the emergency calls to her that I've had in my life that were you know other stressful situations, we were like done and dusted in one session or two. Mm. You know, it was like, oh yeah, right, okay, that, mm -hmm. okay. You know, because your, your, your memory comes back and you, 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 you have the tools that are embedded in you now. You don't lose them, right. and it would just be her, her, you know, kind of redirecting. Okay, go back to this. Remember, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I've got this, which is just so cool. It wasn't right, like, right. oh, I got to go to fifty <clears throat> more sessions now. Mm -hmm. I got this screwed up in my life, and yeah. Remarkable. What's what's also different or distinct from substance abuse? I mean, you get sober. Okay, this is my sobriety date. I've crossed this line. I don't go back. I kind of, you know, etch in stone like this is the date that I got sober. But like with eating disorders, it's it's it can't be like that. Like because you're you're recalibrating your relationship with food, and you have to be eating along the way. So I would imagine it was a more graduated process of trying to 
um, you know, get on top of this thing, right? Like, so how yeah. long did it yeah. take before you felt like, okay, I'm getting a handle on it? Um, a little over two years. I yeah. mean, th that's not, by the first section, first session, I thought, oh my gosh, I think I'm going to get a handle on this, but it took a little over two years before mm -hmm. I was 100% and I knew I would never go back. And I knew I was mm -hmm. I was really, really well and healed. And this is, it wasn't even, I got asked all the time in my cycling career, you know, do you think you're just replacing this, replacing yeah. the eating disorder with this, you know, with your athleticism? And it was like, no way. It's mm -hmm. not, there, there, there's no possibility that that, I don't know if something else will be a problem mm -hmm. later, but it's not gonna be an eating disorder. Yeah, I get I get that a lot. Like, oh well, you do these ultra marathons. It's like, totally. well, you're just in, you're just you just shifted your addiction, and I, I think for me it's a little bit different. I got I have to like, like I I want to dismiss it, but then I have to go. Well, uh -huh. am I? You know, I guess probably on some level I am. You know, but I'm doing it in yeah. a healthier, different. We way. We are who we are. So and that's parts of your personality. Yeah, it's taking some aspect of who I am and trying to channel it for self betterment and and, and the like. There is. I'm sure there's an addictive aspect to it, um, but it's different because it's not destroying my life, it's improving my life. There it, you could, go. it could destroy my life if I had a different kind of relationship with that, as it could for you with cycling, it could have. No doubt. Know, but once you have, you've done that work, you have, a different, you have a different framework for it, I think. Yeah. But, but it isn't, it, you know, like, it, it, you know, perhaps this is a good, now we can segue into the, into the cycling I would imagine initially like the prospect because overexercising is symptomatic of an eating disorder. Um, did you have an impulse early on like to take that sort of manic addict energy and channel it into something else that wasn't necessarily food? Yeah, well, I had severe overexercise mm -hmm. disorder with the anorexia, like nine hours in the gym on the Stairmaster, you know, right. just like so. That was your early cycling career, right? Like, yeah, I was getting fit stationary for the bike stage for races. hours and hours. <laughs> yeah, you didn't know it at the time. I know. Although it wasn't a bike, I never, uh, for whatever reason, I think I didn't think it was going to burn enough. You uh -huh. know, it's like we got to have the whole body moving here. So, so stairmaster, it was a stair that was your jam. Or running or the elliptical. Uh -huh. I don't know. Yeah, but um, when when we finally got towards the end of my therapy, my therapist. I think she knew she knew me very well by that point and she recognized that there was a you know there was a there's a competitor in there somewhere mm -hmm. and that ideally if I was able to act out on that competitive nature that would be the most healthy and she also knew that that I uh would not consider myself healed I told her this in the beginning until I could move my body in a healthy way again because mm -hmm. I knew I liked to move my body I knew that about myself but I was doing it very unhealthfully for so long in my eating disorder so she knew that I had that goal and so she said you know I I feel like we're we're at the point where we're really ready to 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 kind of pick something for you to be able to move your body in a healthy way again but I I want to just completely detach from any sort of negative connections you had with any type of exercises. Mm -hmm. So what's something that you just really have never done before? And I said, what about riding a bike? Cause that was not anything that I had done in the eating disorder. And I had not ridden a bike since I was, you know, you know, 10 years old on the banana seat bike and the, right. with the flag in the neighborhood. Uh, so she said, perfect, great. It's super interesting because it could have gone the other way where look, you know, 
exercise is a trigger for me. So I'm just going to not, I'm going to avoid that for the rest of my life because yeah. that could pull me back into this downward spiral. But yeah. I think it takes courage to say, no, I need to go back into exercise, but I need to figure out how to have a healthy relationship with it. Yeah. Cause you just, I just knew it wasn't, that wasn't going to be authentic me, mm-hmm. you know? And then, and then, and then, then again, that's just, that's not total healing. If I'm just, you right. know, deleting parts of myself. Yeah, it's still living in fear and it's mm-hmm. still being a prisoner to this disease, yeah. right? So yeah. so you enter into that, <laughs> so crazy. Like this is just basically an experiment to become a whole human being, not to like, right. I'm gonna be a competitive <laughs> athlete. Like it's, I mean, first of all, how old were you at this point? I like that experiment yeah. to be a whole human being. Yeah. That is the, 26. 26, okay. So you get a bike. And yeah, what, you start pedaling around the neighborhood. Like, yeah, pretty much <laughs> yeah, like Griffith okay. Park Observatory. I was uh-huh. like, th- that's where I was, and um, I got a um, a bike that was like a mountain bike, but I got slick tires put on it so I could mm-hmm. ride on the street. Uh, so I was you know bouncing around with the shocks. Um, but I started riding around Griffith Park Observatory, and then all of a sudden, you know, I noticed there's like these groups of really fast people that would come by me, and I'm like, oh, I think I can stay with them. And then I kind of could, and then they were like, what are you doing? Like, what <laughs> you know? Because I just looked all right. sorts of wrong, right? The clothes everything. And so um, I met someone on on those group rides that um, uh, was going to do the California AIDS ride. And I thought, well, that's cool because I can like do something good. You know, mm-hmm. you have to raise, back then you had to raise, it's probably a lot more now, but you had to raise $3,000. And I was like, well, this is 96, uh, 98 when I did it. So this was 97. Um, and I thought, Oh my God, that's so much money. How am I going to write letters to everybody I've ever met and, and raise the money? It's like, oh, I'm going to do something good. And it went from um, San, Francisco, San Francisco to LA, but it's, it's like almost you know 700 miles because they don't go direct. Um, and that was, that was, I was like at the front with the head guys and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still on my mountain bike with the slick tires. And uh, like the fourth day in, they were like, what did, who are you? What are you right. doing? And how long have you been riding a bike at this point? Like, just a matter of months. Right. I mean, just not any period of time uh-huh. at all. And I was- And like, that competitiveness, like I gotta be upfront. I guess so. Yeah. I don't, you know, I think too, like I I mean, I like, I used to like to suffer. I don't like to suffer as much as I used to, but um, I've always I've always liked to suffer. And, and the suffering that I went through in, in my eating disorder was just so much more massive than any suffering I was gonna ever experience on a bicycle. So it just didn't feel like much, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, I knew I was suffering and it was, you know, definitely an aspect to that, but it just, it wasn't that bad. And the best part of the cycling was, I knew the suffering would end. I mean, I knew there was a finish line. I knew there was gonna be tents and warm showers and yummy food and, you know, it was gonna end. So I, I it was like, this is gonna last an hour or five, I'm not sure, but, um, but the, that ability to, to to dig that deep and suffer that hard was, you know, definitely was um, trained quite well in my eating disorder years. <laughs> and I think right. I for sure used that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. High pain threshold. Yeah. From psychic pain to physical pain. Yeah, and physical pain in your eating disorder though yeah. too. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. pretty extreme. Uh-huh. All right, so you do the AIDS ride. I, I mean, are the lights going on? Like, how is this, are you thinking, hmm? Like, no, I'm thinking nothing. And nothing. and the guy, I mean, I just, I'm like, I don't know that it's weird that I'm at the front with these guys. I don't uh-huh. know anything. You know what I mean? Right. I just, I know nothing at this point. I, they're just nice guys that I'm like, I felt like you I was- clip on pedals at least? Yeah, yeah, you, yes, okay. yeah. But mountain bike shoes, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. so they're not even hard soles. So I'm uh-huh. losing some Watts through those puppies. Um, so we finished the AIDS ride and 
a couple of them were like, have you ever raced? I'm like, no. Have you ever thought of racing? I'm like, no. What rate? Rate? What race? Where do you, you we just did a race. Mm-hmm. They're like, no, this isn't a real race. This is like a, you know, they had to explain <laughs> yeah. that to me. I'm like, oh, I thought it was a race. Um, could have told me that day one, I could have taken it easy. So they said, I think you should try like a race race. You know, you, you got to get like a license with like USA Cycling. And, and I'm like, well, you know, where do I do that? And they're like, well, here, let's go on the internet. They literally bought my license uh-huh. for me. And I tried my first race. And uh, yeah, that's the rest is history. Right. And, and this starts to happen pretty quickly, right? Oh, yeah. It was like two weeks, you know, like the next week or something. <laughs> I, I, yeah. It was like, uh-huh. okay, I'm going to get a license. And then um, uh the, my first race was up in um, Monterey, California. Criterium or like a road race? Uh, a, a road race in the pouring rain. And as the most scared I've ever been on a bicycle, uh-huh. it's still to this day, it was absolutely treacherous. And I, cause I have no skills. That's the thing. I, you know, and now I'm like 20, you know, whatever, 27 and a half or something, you know what I mean? And uh, I have zero skills. And you're with people who have been riding, you know, in the women's Peloton, they don't start quite as early as, as the men do, but you know, they've been riding at least since high school, mm-hmm. you know, for sure. And, um, you know, I didn't grow up with any of that, those, that eye hand coordination, those motor skills, the technical abilities, you know, a lot of that is really, you know, the, at, at the high level, it's, it's intense, the yeah. technicalities. I mean, it's just like you're, you know, centimeters from each other's handlebars in packs of 150, climbing up the Alps, descending. I mean, you know, we've all watched the Twitter, like those are the descents you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I had I had zero skills, zero ability to control my bike or be safe or, I mean, it was, it, it yeah, was a disaster. Yeah, not just safe for yourself, but safe for everyone else oh, yeah, too. Yeah, you're like abs- a liability. A complete yeah. liability. And I was treated as such uh-huh. for quite a while in the women's Peloton. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it wasn't like you enter your first race and you win. No, I got like 12th or something mm-hmm. in that, yeah. It was like a cap yeah. four or was it yeah, like, yeah. it was a no, cap four? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. absolutely, yeah. All right, but did it, it get, did it get its claws in you? Like, were you like, oh man, this is this is gonna be my thing? Yeah, I, I re, right when I finished, I, I remember going to the van and trying to warm up. It was freezing and changing my clothes and calling my mom and going, that's the most horrible experience I have ever had in my life. I want to die. That was so dumb. We're going, uh-huh. and, it, and within hours I was like, where's the next race? Right. It could have been like, I'm hanging it up. Like that's oh, not for me. It was, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But then you right. just realize that's bike racing. Mm-hmm. It's awful. But you move up pretty quickly, right? From cat four to cat two. And how long is this yeah, process? I moved of- up from cat four to cat one in, in, in less than a year. So uh-huh. it was, wow. again, that's cool, but I was a liability still at this point because yeah. I'm now a cat one and just scary to be around in a criterium for sure. And by this point, I've bought a bike that um, some people will know is a soft ride. So it uh, was those old triathlon bikes yeah, where yeah. you're like boing, 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 yeah. boing. Uh-huh. And I'm in a crit doing that. And oh, people no. are like, you have to get a bike that doesn't <laughs> bounce around <laughs> yeah. as we like go through the corners at uh, warp speed. So, but. Where does the, I think I read somewhere like that you sort of said to somebody that you were a professional cyclist before you were even a professional cyclist. I did. So I decided that if I was going to do this, I I, uh, I think I, I came back from the AIDS run. I was like, I got to get more miles on my legs. Like the, the these people I'm going to be competing against, you know, they they have, they, they've been doing this a long time. I get more miles on my, mm-hmm. my legs. So I lived in Venice. So I decided if I got a bike messenger job in downtown LA, um, 
then that would give me almost 60 miles a day because it was 25 miles mm. to ride there, 25 back, right? Then you have messenger. So I go downtown LA, I get a bike messenger job. I'm the only girl. I'm the only one that doesn't smoke a tremendous amount of pot all yeah. day long. <laughs> uh-huh. Wow. Um, and so I did I, I did that and I, I started to, to, to get, uh, those miles in my legs. Mm-hmm. And that was that, that was the and skill, probably like technical skills. I started too, like to a little traffic, bit like the, yeah, know? the guys were starting to teach me stuff. I said, you know, I'm, 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 I'm racing. So I, you know, I, I, I need some help with this. And I learned, I, yeah, I learned some things. I mean, it, it, it's, you, you can learn it, but then to do it is kind of a whole nother, you know, they always say in cycling, like just follow my line. If I can do it, you can do it. That's not true. Don't believe that. Mm-hmm. Even to this day, mountain biking, my husband's like, if I can go down these rocks, no, I can't because you have just a better balance and awareness of your body weight. And it's like, you know, you have to be, uh, yeah. And that's just time. I mean, that's just time in the saddle, right? Exactly, you know? right, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, which I didn't have time, mm-hmm. you know, that was that was kind of one, one of the issues. So, mm-hmm. um, but I got, I got a lot of, uh, I did. I I did get a lot of miles in with that with that messenger job, and mm-hmm. then you know rode then every Saturday and Sunday just with the group rides in Santa Monica and got lost. I took cabs back from the Simi ride like multiple times because yeah. I didn't know where I was <laughs> and what was where. Uh-huh. The... <laughs> you probably rode by this house. I think the oh, Simi yeah. ride comes by here all the oh, time. Oh, for sure. No, yeah. when I was driving here, I was yeah. like, this is this is my training ground for yeah, years. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, every road up here. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. (laughs) 
So was there one race that like kind of clinched it for you where somebody noticed you and said, hey, we can develop you? Or like, how did it, how did it uh, transpire to you then becoming professional? Yeah, I, uh, so I was on a, a small team for um, a couple of years and that team, we went to US Nationals in, uh, I don't remember what year, but um, probably 90, probably 2000. Yeah. Yeah. I think 2000 and um, I got fourth at US Nationals. Mm. And that, that, that and your was- your first US Nationals. Yeah. After riding yeah. how yeah. many years at that point? No. Three honestly. years? Yeah. Three years. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and so then that- then In the, the road race? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Up in, uh, I was in Redding, um, California. So then, then that's the national team called and said, you know, come to the training center and have some testing and- um, you're kind of old, but you know, come anyway. <laughs> it's like, thanks a lot. <laughs> um, and then I did testing and they were like, oh yeah, you're old and you're not that talented. They were like, the testing was just super smart. It was just, I'm like, I don't have a lot of mm-hmm. deep well of talent. Like I recognize I'm more talented than the next person on a bike, but not, I don't have like really great lung capacity or, you know, high right. end. So it wasn't like you were someone who's just walking around on planet earth with no idea that you had this unbelievable right. amount of talent that just needed to find its Yeah, no, yeah. no, it's a lot of, uh-huh. it's just, just a, a lot, like a large capacity to suffer a lot, I think is uh-huh. really all that's in there. And because, yeah, so they were like, ah, uh, you know, okay, we'll, we'll take you to a few races, like, you know, clearly, visually disappointed on their face I could see after the testing was over and mm. I was like oh no this mm-hmm. is this is a this is a one time <laughs> ticket to uh, I, we were in Chula Vista at the training center down right. there uh-huh. um but then I started to traveling with the US team and uh you know was a was a darn good domestique for a long time there and, and you know I, I had so much to learn I mean I was on the team with like you know real serious badasses. Right. I mean, these women were fighting it out for, um, you know, World Cups and, and World Championships and, and Olympics. And that's who I was on the team with, uh-huh. so. It's interesting that mainstream audiences have no, myself included, have very little understanding or awareness of, of women cycling. Like we, mm-hmm. we watched the Giro, which I wanna talk to you about, you know, Tour de France, all that kind of stuff. And we have some sense of what it's like in the men's world, but mm-hmm. this world of women cycling just goes completely unnoticed. Yeah. For the most part. Well, kind I mean, of how, welcome to the world like, in general, how, yeah. <laughs> Rich. Like, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, right. It's a bigger, it's symptomatic of something yeah. larger, of course, but, but I, but I, you know, how many women are in this sport, and where do they typically, mm-hmm. you know, learn how to do this? Yeah, well, so you know, as you know, and everyone, cycling is wildly popular in Europe and not here in the states. Mm-hmm. So when we're over traveling in, in Europe and racing, you know, there is an awareness and there is an excitement about it, and there are fans, and it is something that people recognize and understand the women's side of the sport. Um, you know why it's not as recognized here um, as it is with the men is symptomatic of something else, like you right. said. But um, you know, over in Europe, I think they do um, uh, definitely a much better job of, pe- of of the awareness of of who the women are. But nonetheless, it's still a very small peloton compared mm-hmm. to uh, the men. I think you know, women in general, I it, it, the men tend to start much younger. They put 
they're the little boys on bikes seems to be much, much younger and whether they want to or not. And they, you know, the talent ID camps over in Europe will select these young boys from 10, 11, 12. Women tend to, you know, find it as an outlet in high school or college or something, or maybe they're on the kind of a club team in college. And, and um, so they have had, you know, an entire, they've gone to college and had an entire education before they even really start mm. racing professionally. It's just a completely different entry and it's a completely different exit then. And the women definitely end up on the top in the exit because you come out and you you have a college degree and this was a really fun and interesting part of your life, but you're ready for the next adventures and you have the education and the ability. The men come out and they are completely lost. Right, because they've been living in Belgium in a dormitory since age 16. Right, right? and it, when, yeah. if they made it all the way through, then maybe they've made it onto some really big professional teams and they've done the tour you know, multiple times. I mean, there's a handful of US riders that are making a, you know, a good living now, you know, you know, Hincapi and, mm-hmm. and, and ta- you know, the, the, that crew, um, but, but many, many, many hundreds more uh, that their the career's over either because they have a horrific crash, right? And it, and it just ends right then and there, or just because, uh, you know, they get a bit older, mm-hmm. what, like 31, 32, and then what what are they gonna do? So it, it, it ends up being a very male-centric sport in general, because what do they do? They go right back into cycling. Their managers, their soigneurs, their mechanics. That's what they know. Because that's what they know yeah. and they don't know where else to go. So that, you know, you just, you just see it kind of like, you know, cycle itself. Right, right. Yeah, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that. Um, so you end up on like T-Mobile, right? Yeah, right. right. And, and you ride the Giro. You yes. You ride the Giro, yeah. Yes. What year was that? Oh God, let's probably, oh, 2003 or four, I would say, uh-huh. yeah. That had to be amazing. Yeah, for sure, it definitely, yeah. I mean, they still have rules in women's cycling uh, to this day. Uh, that are we're trying to change um, uh, that you can only ride a certain amount of kilometers. So right. I don't know what they think is going to happen to us. Like yeah. at the well, it's the same so in swimming. Not, like they don't have they have right? they have shorter events for women. It's yeah. crazy. It's it's really getting silly at yeah. this point. So I'm just saying that because the Giro that we're thinking of that the men do, we could clearly do, but that wasn't you know it was it's a like different course. Yeah, it's a different course and just different links, right? Mm. We're only allowed to do so many kilometers. So um, and it's. 15, it was 15 days. I think it's shorter now, but right. The men's is obviously three weeks, 21 days. Right. So yeah. yeah. You frail women. We don't, we, oh, you, I don't you, know. You yeah. little flowers, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so you kind of take this road cycling career essentially as far as you feel like you can, like mm-hmm. you're at, at, at your peak, where are you at? Like in the Peloton? You're kind of like in the, the middle of the packer there, um, or no? I got a bit better, better than, than that. that. Like I um, won some domestic stage races and um, won some big uh, and, and and some big single day stage mm-hmm. races um, and won some stages as some big European uh, so you, races. You but prove those those people wrong who are like, eh, you're a little old I and think you're not. <laughs> I might have. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, we haven't even gotten to the coup de gras with that, but. <laughs> But all right, so you have yeah. this road cycling career and and then, you know, basically what? You're you're thinking about retiring and Yeah, I was. I was about thirty five at the time mm-hmm. and I I was um I mean, quite frankly, I was just getting kind of bored. I get bored fairly easily still. And I just thought, you know, gosh, I mean, that was just obviously way more than I had ever imagined it ever could be. I mean, wow, what a what a mm-hmm. ride that was, what a great adventure. Um 
And, you know, it's been nine years since I had first gotten on a bike and I thought, well, that's enough. You know, I, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll see what else is out there. Uh, and I, I had just won a, uh, prologue at a, a, a major international event in Australia. And my coach at the time said, you know, you have a, a really unique ability at this, you know, 10 minute or so effort output. Um, I was never really great in like 20K, 40K time trials. I was like, always like, okay, you know, ninth or something mm -hmm. like that. But it was never, I would always get well, quite frankly, bored in them. Like, oh my God, we're still going. I could never do what you did. Oh my God. Um, so I had this, uh, and do this, this, you know, there is where that natural talent lies in that, that middle distance sort of aerobic and anaerobic combined mm -hmm. effort. And so he said, I think you should try, I think you should try the track. I think you should try the pursuit, like just give it a go. It's that you, you've got like a really in, intense talent in this, um, this distance. And so I did. And I mm -hmm. thought, well, this is, this is kind of, this is kind of cool. Cause it's something different. I went to the track for the first time um, and was scared out of my mind. Never been on a track before. No, they had tried to put me on a track many years before and I was so scared that I literally got off the bike, they continued their training and I went and did running wind sprints out in the parking lot because I thought, well, at least I'm like training, but I couldn't wrap my head around going up on the 45 degree banking and my tires sticking. Like it mm -hmm. just, it made no sense to me, still doesn't really. And so it was like, this is so amazing because I am so scared doing it. I mean, it just felt like I was coming alive again on the bike. Um, all the way through to the Olympic Games, I was petrified of riding at the top of the track. Even at, even during, even the Olympics. I remember the very last time. So in my event, you only are at the top of the track in training. So our event is is done from a standing start on mm -hmm. the black line, and, you know, and you do 12 laps and, and you do exchanges. So you fly up there and, and down and that wasn't scary in the event, but just riding as you're, as you're kind of working into an effort, we call it, you'll do two or three laps at the very top of the track, right? So it right next to the rail and you're going kind of slow because you're preparing for a, right. a huge burst, right? So, but you can't go too slow on the track because, uh, you'll slide off, um, and, and, you know, get, pretty horrible um, wood burn mm -hmm. and splinters. I have splinters in my hips from crashing and they're still, they're still there. And so it doesn't feel good. So some of my teammates were, um, you know, track trackies and, and, and track sprinters even used to, they used to be, and they were uh, a bit larger and you stick better on the track if you're larger than if you're a bit lighter. Mm -hmm. And I was coming from road racing. So I just, you know, I wasn't skinny, but I just wasn't, a, you know, a sprinter. And so it would scare the living daylights out of me because they were going creeping around the top of the track. And I'm going, maybe you're not going to slide, but I am getting ready to slide. And like I could feel like sideways. my back wheel, just yeah. sideways, just, mm -hmm. uh, just. So the very last effort we did before Olympic games, like the day before we did a 1500 meter effort and we finish it. And I come down and my teammate says to me, she's like, you never have to do that again. Cause she knew how bad it scared me. Uh -huh. And then, and when you're at competition tracks, there's all these other teams whirling around. So right. you've got traffic. Right. on the 45 degree banking, which just is like, yeah, it's, I can't even describe how right. scary so, it is. All right, so, <laughs> yeah. But it's mesmerizing to watch. It's it's like this crazy ballet and, and, and very beautiful. Like, but for somebody who who has no familiarity with this at all, like you do team pursuit 
you're in a velodrome, they have these crazy banked turns mm-hmm. that look 45 degrees, right. right? How high up is the right. highest bank? Um, it's like four stories, I guess. Four stories, wow. And how fast do you have to be going to kind of, you know, not <laughs> fall? And when you're going, the faster yeah. you're going, the more, the more perpendicular you are to the ground, right? I would imagine. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, like mm, I've never had a speedometer at the on the bars of my track bike. Believe it or not, that's kind of like something you like. We always kept our our SRM or our watt meter was connected to our seat because you can't mm. read anything when you're in mm-hmm. any kind of effort on the track. But it felt like you know. I mean, sprinters are gonna laugh at this because they would probably say like five miles an hour. But for me, it's a little closer to 15 to feel mm-hmm. safe because I, I I never slid off the track because I was going too slow. Because that just, what I mean, right. you know, so yeah, it's it's a bit more of a clip than you would like to just be doing recovering mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. And although it's, you know, both road racing and, and track cycling are on a bike, they're incredibly different. Like your road cycling is all about, um, you know, efficiency and how you're meeting out your energy over an extended period of time. And there's, there's, you know, there's surges, et cetera, and things like that within the context of that. But in track cycling, it's about massive bursts of power. Yeah, it being is. Being able to maintain gigantic mm-hmm. watts on a gigantic gear. Yeah. And also all the crazy strategy and tactics that go into when you make those surges and when yeah. you make those moves. So you do have a, a like you do have a efficiency and economy of efficiency happening in team pursuit based on the team and and what the riders uh, strengths and weaknesses are and how you're going to use them to the team's best ability. Like you can change um, how many half laps, laps, lap and a half, two laps people do. Um, you can feel that off of the rider in front of you um, and recognize that they're actually going to take a short turn mm-hmm. or that they might go a bit longer, which usually never happens, but that they're going to have to peel off in a short turn. Like in the in the Olympic Games, um, and there's some me that you know. I will say there's a little bit of ego connected to that. Like you want to be able to do your full turn. Um, But my fourth pull, I was supposed to do one lap. And I knew that, that, that my teammate, Sarah Hammer was, was um, had an extra gear. I could feel it um, from the, the, the two laps before that. And I just instinctually knew I got to get out of the way. Mm -hmm. We got to get her to the front for these last couple laps. I knew we were behind with Australia. This is, this is to go to the, into the gold medal. Um, I didn't realize we were 1.7 seconds behind. And that is a deficit in team pursuit that has nobody's ever come back from. Yeah. Yeah, Nobody ever has. And so, uh, it was, that was an instinctual and, and, and my teammate behind me, um, uh, Jenny Reed says, I had no, idea that you were going to pull off. Like you weren't slowing. And I knew I wasn't slowing and I could hang, but I knew I was just going to keep the same speed. And I knew Sarah had another gear. So I came off, came back on, and we ended up being in Australia by eight one hundredths of a second. Wow! So it was definitely releasing that ego for the team. Not at that 
you know, that you, you had that at that level in the Olympic games, like oh, I have to do my full pull or whatever, but you kind of do in training mm-hmm. and, you know, it was, you normally would swing off if you're starting to die. And I knew I wasn't, I just knew that we had an, another gear with, with another rider. So anyway, incredible amount of, 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 of tactics, tactics and savviness and, um, thinking, and then just subconscious thinking, you get to know each other so, so, so well. Right. You have to be so in sync with your team. Teammates, mm-hmm. that that subtle, like that subtle intangible thing that you're aware of, that allowed you to make that decision right. in that moment, that made the difference. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, um, I mean, how long do you have to ride with your teammates before you can kind of develop that awareness? Um, well, we'd been on that journey together, I guess, for four years. I mean, I had ridden with her before that. Like she was she was the person that I met her and her um, husband, Andy Sparks, at the LA track for the very first time when I tried it, when that coach I had said had, mm-hmm. had said try it. Um, so so I had ridden with her for even more years than that. But but the real push to 2012 Olympics was, you know, we'd 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 been at it for for years. Mm-hmm. And and just to be clear, like Team pursuit is basically you and your team. There's four of you, right? Yeah. So my in, in 2012, it, they did the women, uh, three women, three kilometers. You couldn't lose anyone. Mm-hmm. Now they do it just like the men. It's four women, four kilometers, but you can drop someone. So totally different right. tactic. Like and completely you, so different. You're rotating. Who's pulling? Exactly. Over the yeah. Of so this. the tracks are they're 250 meters. So in three kilometers, you're doing 12 laps you know, four kilometers, you're mm-hmm. doing 16 and you start from a dead start. So track bikes are fixed gears, no brakes. So you start uh, the, the starter that's uh, taking the most load from the start is in a gate. And then the other people are up track being held by a person that is mm-hmm. acting as a starting gate. And so you're in a gear that is big enough that when you get up to speed, you can go fast enough. So it's a, it's it's really, it's about 800 watts of power out of, out of the starting gate, <laughs> right. um, which is a gnarly way to start a race. Cause yeah. if you think about it, when you start a time trial, you know, you, you start in a spinny gear a little bit till you get up to speed. So you don't load your legs. Mm-hmm. So it's this really gnarly load the first five seconds of the race. Just a lactate yeah. cascade from moment yeah. one. Like just right. blast. And like, then you're up welcome to- Welcome to Team Pursuit. Like a, your cadence is up to hundred, like 122, right? When yeah, your yeah, peak. that's what we averaged. We th- Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the race. Yeah, that's unbelievable. In that, in that- monster monster gear. So for 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 trackies we we rode uh 102s at the mm-hmm. at Olympic Games, which is which is pretty big. And what is the training like? Uh, like on a daily basis, what does it look like? The training like? is a is a, a real combination of aerobic efficiency and anaerobic power. So it is very much like that, you know, I compare it to the 800 meters or 1500 right. meters right, track runners. Mm-hmm. So we're doing five and six hour road rides. We're doing gnarly gym work and we're doing really explosive track work. I mean, you, you know, people don't realize in three and a half minutes, I mean, that's, that's not anaerobic. You know, you need oxygen if you're going for, for three minutes, you know, 16 seconds. So it's a combo. And if you don't have that efficiency and if you don't have that base and you don't have that economy, you can't ever go as fast as you go at mm-hmm. that level if you, if you don't have that set in your system. It's like the hardest equation to solve because you have to be incredibly proficient as an anaerobic athlete and as an aerobic athlete. I think the 800 meters, it's because you can't, yeah. like if you're running the 800 meters, you can't go all out the entire time. 
right? There is some pacing and some strategy involved with that, but you have to be a sprinter and you have to be an endurance athlete. Yeah, but at that level, at the Olympic level, you you are. I mean, I would say from our race, like you you always, you always die. Like you never, mm. you, you, we, we've never did a race that we increased, uh, or I should say decreased our lap times. Mm-hmm. You all, so, so you literally are building a system that can go all out for three minutes and 16 seconds. Mm-hmm. And that training involves longer endurance training on the road, and then also super high output Mm-hmm. On the track, right? Right, just, is just busting it as hard as you possibly yeah. can. Yeah, and 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 another thing that people don't realize is how much raw strength is involved. Because with the one gear and with that big of a gear, you have to have the strength to keep that gear turning over at 122, mm-hmm. right? So the, the cadence. So the 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 fastest anyone is going to go on a bike is the highest cadence in the biggest gear. So a lot of people look at tracks like they're like, oh wow, they're spinning so high. You know, they're at 122. But you're in a gigantic monster gear, gear yeah, yeah, yeah. doing that. And to keep on top of the gear, as we'll as we say it, you have to have an incredible amount of strength because you can't fall off the gear. Mm-hmm. Because once you fall off the gear, it's over. You're 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 dropped. Because in road cycling, you can you can shift if you're kind of fall, you know, that feeling you're kind of falling off the gear and it's like, whoa, I gotta spin this out mm-hmm, and move through some mm-hmm. lactate. You right. Can't, you can recover and yeah. then regroup. Right? right. So you can't do right. it on the track. Right. The track, the the track athletes, track cycling athletes look totally different from the road cyclists. They mm-hmm. almost look like they're very like very thick and squat and incredibly strong. They almost look like wrestlers, you know? Or yeah, especially like, the sprinters, like, right? Like yeah. the sprinters totally look like that. I mean, they uh-huh. look like, uh, I mean, to track cycling, it is so similar to track and field. You've got the sprinters and you've got the middle distance and you've got the mm-hmm. endurance and they, you know, they tend to look the part <laughs> to right, each right, one right. of them, yeah. What's that crazy event like the, I don't know what it's called, the Dolly Madison or something like that. They, oh, the Ma- yeah, isn't it yeah, Madison? The Madison, yeah, right. Yeah. Like I still, don't, under, I still, I still don't even <laughs> understand what that is. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. yeah, so they sling each other. I mean, you're, you're in a team of two mm-hmm. uh, and and they uh, and you you basically rotate laps and they um, use each other as a, a propeller to, to, to go fast into the into the next lap. So so the person that is coming out of the race onto the relief line, you know, is uh swings the the next mm, person down mm-hmm. in and then they race and race and then it's yeah it's it's re- it's really fun to watch but it's really confusing. Mm-hmm. I mean it's really hard to figure out I'm like I don't know what's happening. Who's here. winning? Yeah. Who's it? Yeah, yeah. But uh-huh. it's pretty It's yeah. like watching cricket. Right. Yeah, oh, exactly. <laughs> you know? Like watching cricket. That's just what I was thinking. <laughs> How come you didn't do individual did you try to pursue individual pursuit? I did. I started, that was like 2007 that I did my first individual pursuit. Uh, But in 2008, Beijing Olympics was the last time that they had uh, individual pursuit in the Olympic Games. Oh, I didn't so know then that. they changed the. They, they do this a lot in a lot of sports where they, you know, they change the program trying to, you know, get the audience excited. I mean, individual pursuit is an amazing event, mm-hmm. but watching it, if you don't know what's going on, it can put you to sleep because it's just like a rider riding around in circles. Um, so they took the individual pursuit out of the program and added in mm. the for the women, women's team pursuit, it was already in for the men. And they added uh, more parity to track cycling. So it was equal events, men and women. I see. Um, so for endurance track, all they had was team pursuit and the Omnium, which is, um, 
yeah, a whole nother oh, event. That's a whole other <laughs> yeah, a whole, <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what year was it that you start? 2007 was your first time on the track? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then you you ascend pretty rapidly here, right? Like you end up winning like seven US titles, something like yeah. that. Right. Over the course of the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. So first race on the track, what was did you win that race? Like what did that what what did that look like? I did. You did. Yeah, it was an individual pursuit. Uh-huh. Um and it was it was nationals actually because I I went first race first race on the track was nationals and you win yes but our 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 <laughs> our, our yeah. most decorated female individual pursuiter of all times in the United States was injured so I will say that don't diminish but she was, she was, <laughs> come on she was helping me uh, but uh, so I got a little I get a little I got a little lucky that year um, but in the final of that race like you do qualifying rounds and then you go into the gold medal final and in the gold medal final um at uh that 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 track is the home depot home depot center mm-hmm. right now stubhub center um and they'd had x games in there the week before which had created this like in- incredible amount of uh, of dust and this they mm-hmm. had it was like there was like this layer of dust on the track that was making it really slick they were crashing a lot in the in the and like days mon- before. monster energy drinks exactly right still they would, yeah but i would have <laughs> oh, taken some God. sticky but it was uh, so i'm in the gate and we take off you know the gun goes off for the the gold medal ride and i crash immediately like i literally take one try to take one pedal stroke out of the gate which is a really powerful pedal stroke right and just slide out and fall i mean just zoom just right underneath myself and i didn't know enough to know cuz this is literally 6 weeks out after the first time i'd gotten on the track and i was on it for like a week and then uh-huh. the the person that that was helping me you know andy and sarah were like you know nationals is in like 5 weeks let's, let's just let's just go for it i'm like okay uh, you know so here we are so i slide out and this very decorated person i'm talking about that's won world championships and everything at this point and had already been to an olympic games she she comes up to me runs up and she's like don't worry about it, it happens all the time uh-huh. And I'm like, oh my God, wow, I'm not retarded. Like, oh, this happens. They come out of the gate, people slide, you know. I take off uh, again, you get a second, re- you get a restart and I, I won. And right after the race is over, um, I come up to her and I was like, that was the best news ever. Like it completely relaxed me like, okay, this is normal. Cause I don't know anything about tracks. Mm-hmm. Like I've never even been to an international track race. And she's like, I've never seen that happen before in the history of tracks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was like, Wow, you're like a psychologist, aren't you? <laughs> she knew I needed to hear, like, oh no, okay, well, leave it to oh me. Oh my God, I can't. And then you win. That's so insane. It felt insane yeah, for sure. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. All right. So fast forward to 2012 Olympic Games, London. You're 39 at this point. Yeah, 39. Are you the oldest person months. on the on the cycling team? I'd be one of the older. Athletes yes. on the USA Olympic team in general, I would imagine. Right, probably so. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I on the cycling team, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I was. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so, going into that, what were the prospects of meddling? Like, where did you guys fall in the pecking order? Oof, of like we were total underdogs. Really? I mean, total. I mean, it, it, so it, track cycling again, right, is not wildly popular here mm-hmm. in the United States. We don't know a lot about it, but it is the thing in Great Britain, in mm-hmm. Australia, in New Zealand. I mean, these are deep, rich track cycling countries that have respected it for, you know, a hundred years. I mean, literally. So um, we were up against giants in, in this sport. I mean, you know, it would be like, I mean, it literally is like, 
you know, Jamaican bobsledders beating the Germans or something. Mm -hmm. wow. it, it was like, we were major underdogs. The, the bookies had us at, at the very best at fifth. Um, and we just thought, Maybe if it's our best day ever, there would be a scratch of a possibility we could get a bronze. Like, you know, there was, we were, we was, we'd never beaten the the British or the Aussies before. They're, they're A teams. We'd beaten like their B teams, whatever, uh -huh. but um, at, at, at ever. So how did this happen? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still not entirely sure. It was, you know, it's, that's the thing about sport at that level is you, you know, you do it your whole life or, or whatever, and you, you you train and train and train, but it's all about delivering in that one moment on that one day, in that one month, in that one, you know, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's not something that is, you could ever probably repeat again, or that would have ever happened again. A lot of the really mm -hmm. amazing Olympic moments, right. That we watched, that we just watched in Pyeongchang, like, um, the, the skier, the girl that had never won a world cup right. or anything, but, you know, it's just like, we, we had one of those moments. Mm -hmm. We just rode completely outside of our skin. Uh, two of us on the team, Jenny Reed and myself have never, ever performed or been able to put that output out on the track ever in, in our history. And we probably couldn't have done it the next day. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was a moment in time that the three of us put together. We had a lot of love and a lot of respect for each other. And there's something about team pursuit or any really kind of team sport where, you know, you're not lining up for yourself. You know, there's, there's this, this whole other layer, this whole other beautiful layer that I mm -hmm. loved about Team Pursuit more than I ever loved anything about Road where it, was, it wasn't about self. Um, it, was about, it was about others and it was about, um, you better make sure that you're showing up 100% because you know that they are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like relay swimming. It's like relays in swimming yeah. or, or in track and field. Yeah. I mean, there's something really beautiful and powerful about that. And that's what's magical mm -hmm. about the Olympics when yeah. moments like that occur. I mean, it's so yeah. cool. That yeah. you got to, what, is, what is being an Olympian, what does that experience mean to you? I mean, now it's been a couple of years as you mm -hmm. reflect back on that. <clears throat> well, you know, there's something, there's something great about being 39 and a half at the Olympics and, and that's awesome. Well, it just <laughs> besides that it's rare or whatever, but I was a, a grown woman and I was really, really hyper aware that I was at the Olympic games, that this was not going to be an experience I would be repeating, that I was representing my country and I specifically got selected to go deliver uh, for my country and my team and, and, and USA Cycling. And I was able to just be there and be super present and soak up every single moment where I think if I'd gone to the Olympics at 20, you know, you're like, oh, this is cool. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. Awesome clothes. I'm going to be here 10 more times, you know, which you're not necessarily, first of all, 20 year olds, right? <laughs> you, yeah. you, you don't know that that's the case, but, um, it was uh, it was just a magical experience for me in every way because I allowed it to be, and I I went after it being that experience. And just I had done a ton of sports psychology because I struggled with really big time nerves in track cycling, mm. um, but I felt like I got there just really fully, completely mentally and emotionally present, and was able to have that full um, experience. And so it's almost 
it's almost like fairyland when I look back on it. I, yeah, I, yeah. It like, really is. I, like I'm me, very grateful. It wouldn't, it wouldn't mean as much to you if you were younger and 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 weren't able to like have that presence of mind and and no and perspective when you're young, right? Yeah. Either like there was just no, and I had a ton of perspective and had almost died, uh-huh. and you know this was really just felt like a complete gift that that this was even in the realm of possibilities that I was now experiencing this it's in my crazy. life. When you if, think about it, a little, from, a little nutty. From like wandering out into the middle of an interstate mm-hmm. to being on the podium in London, I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's really well, that's quite something. Thank you. Um, did you see Icarus? The doc, that documentary, Icarus. Yes. Yeah. What do you What do you think? Like, as an Olympian, <sighs> you know, the now we're mm. in the midst of you know this conversation about state-sponsored doping and Mm -hmm. and kind of this cloud that is hovering over the Olympics itself. And as somebody who's, who is an Olympian, like- And the Russians have had some doping violations in this Olympus, sounds like they're not gonna be invited this summer. Well, I know, and you had him on the podcast, I think. Yeah, Um, I had Brian on. So I have, I think a little bit of a different view of that movie than some other people that I've spoken to about the movie. you know, if he hadn't have been uh, very specifically seeking out his own systematic doping, he would have never have run into that doctor, and that whole mm-hmm. that whole part of the story would have never unfolded. The second half of the movie and that the systematic doping and how it is 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 interesting. It uncovers a lot of truths that were not uncovered. But as a Olympian and as a clean athlete and as someone who uh, you know, was very conscious about being clean. Uh, the movie really kind of angers me because he was setting out to cheat. Very complete, full consciousness of cheating. I don't care if it's just a grand fondo or whatever you're gonna go to the line. There's a lot of people there that lined up in all honesty and clean. And the fact that it didn't work gave me some pleasure. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, but I, I, yeah, I'm not a big fan of the movie because of that. Like I don't, I don't, I, I'm, I don't love watching stories of people um, vindictively, dishonestly going to the start line. I, I don't have any respect for that. Yeah, I get that. I get that. You know, as somebody who who is in a sport that has you know a cloud over it as well, right? And sure. Somebody who's, who, yeah, who right, is, right. Who, who is clean layer. and fighting clean and mm-hmm. and all of that. I can understand you know that emotional response to that for sure. It is, it is fascinating to see what's happened though on the on the geopolitical stage mm-hmm. as a result of that mm-hmm. second and third act of that movie though. And I think more right. will be revealed and right. and hopefully this will lead us to, you know, some higher ground here. Yeah. But, and I think that's know. I mean that was why it was uh that that part of it was like, you know, people you, you really got a good full view of the underbelly. Mm-hmm. Again, how you know how it all yeah. all of the hidden secrets and how it's all how it all unfolded. And that's hap- you know unfolded in many countries that way. It's bananas. Um East Germany. I mean that that's 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 a whole nother level what's oh, yeah. going on from Russia right now. Yeah. I mean that Well, I remember the East German swimmers from back yeah, in the eighties. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean it was, uh, it was something else at the time. All right. Well let's talk about let's talk about the diet. Okay. <laughs> How long have we been talking? Topic? Like hour and a half into this, the word oh, vegan God, has not been uttered people. one time. I know, you know? it's horrible. <laughs> 
when are they going to talk about the fact that she's vegan? All right, so um, vegan athlete. Hopefully they haven't tuned out yet. No, <laughs> get to this part. It's been riveting. Um, so when did you turn vegan? Why did you turn vegan? You were vegetarian prior to that. Yeah, like, yeah. Give me I, the history I, here. Um, so I just uh, was just. Um, Hanging out uh, in in I was at a race in uh, Minnesota, uh, road race, and it was a stage race, and I uh, stumbled upon uh, a program that uh, showed what goes on behind closed doors of our slaughterhouses mm-hmm. every single day, and um, I felt very confused and and uh, and of course horrified and and uh, uh, all of those. Uh, feelings, but I I felt really confused because I thought, well, I think this is probably from another country because you know our government protects its people, and that of course has to include all of our food sources. And so I thought, well, I'm going to stop eating animals tomorrow just in case this has any validity. But I think I'm going to go home from this race and start doing research and find out that this is like obviously just an isolated incident. So. I, I stopped eating meat the next day, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the next morning. And then of course, go home to find out, holy mother of God, this is, this is systematic across all big agriculture, every animal, every species of animal, every... So I was, that was the beginning of my vegetarian journey. And then as I dug deeper and found out more and looked under more hoods, uh, there was the um, exposure of the egg industry and the dairy industry, mm-hmm. and which are really, in my opinion, wildly more horrifying mm-hmm. than the meat industry mm-hmm. um, could ever be. So this was this began. What year was that? Um, two thousand, like mid two thousand nine. Uh huh. Yeah. So you're yeah. full on cycling pro at the time. Did you have some trepidation about how this was going to impact your training and your performance? Yeah, I, I, I kind of did. I, I had, I had a coach who was a vegan, which is interesting, and I, I had read the China study, so I, I kind of heard about this and was like, oh, that's interesting. So I, I, I had had a sense that I might not completely, I wasn't going to perish from being a vegan, like I wasn't going to die, mm-hmm. right? But. I kind of thought this might end my career. Like I didn't know that it was, I was necessarily gonna be able to have the strength and the stamina because where might I get my protein? Right. But I didn't care. I, I thought, you know, this, I just knew almost instantly that this was something that was significantly more important than anything I was gonna ever be individually on a bicycle, that it was uh, so much bigger than any Olympic games could ever be for me in my life or just in general. And um, I was fully willing to take the risk. And and how did that play out in terms of shifting your diet and then monitoring how you're progressing as an athlete? Well, I, I started, uh, I mean, you know, when people ask today, oh gosh, how, you know, how do you do it? It's so hard. And it's like, I didn't think it was that hard. I still am just <laughs> so confused not that by that question. Because <laughs> yeah. first of all, there's Google, 
You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I can get like a, whatever 50 years ago or something. It's like, okay, but it's just, it just, I mean, it just explodes in your face. Recipes and foods and all these, and, and all these interesting ways to put the foods together and the flavors mm-hmm. and the taste and the spices. And, and, um, you know, still we have to remember that our, food, our plant food, our, our spices, our herbs are what flavor meat food. Nobody's ever just, you know, most of the time slapped just a piece of meat on the grill. They have marinated it and tenderized it and spiced it. And that's plant food that does that. So when people say, oh, well, it's not going to taste very good. It's like, (laughs) we are the food that is making your food taste good. So it's, it, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was fun. Like I really was like, interested in the journey of it. And I loved cooking all of the mm-hmm. sudden, which I hadn't for all of those 37 years. I just, I mean, my husband and I went out to eat six nights a week. It was like mm-hmm. boring kitchen. I don't want to do. Now I'm like interested in cooking and preparing food. And then I start to become really interested in, uh, you know, types of nutrients that I'm putting in, how I'm feeling, and then what's coming out on the bike. So I'm doing like all these little mini experiments with myself. And then I'm going back to the drawing board and going, okay, a little more of that, a little more of this. You know, what it, it was, it was just, yeah, it was it was fun. And cycling is a super interesting template to explore this because it's like this perfectly conceived contraption to quantify mm-hmm. human output and performance. You've got the right. power meter, you got yeah. the heart rate monitor. I mean, especially on the track, you, you more know, data like, than you it's could like, ever. It's, it's like, like a data, data mining machine, mm-hmm. right? So there's yeah. there is no other sport where you could just lose yourself in graphs and data to really map out, like, okay, what is what's the impact of this on this, right? Yes. So were you were you like sort of paying attention to that? Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I had a I um an uh, unfortunately. Uh, too tall for really awesome aerodynamics. Mm-hmm. I've got really long legs and a short torso, so so, so I sit up quite high. And so uh, in in track cycling and team pursuit, um, you have you know exactly how many watts that you have to put out on the front to sustain the speed that you want to go. For me, it was four hundred and seventy four. <laughs> And I know exactly- For people that don't know, that's a really high number. (laughs) I know exactly how many watts that I have to put out when I am in, you know, relief, quote, right? Uh, Which was closer to 340. Mm -hmm. So that's my rest. Um, Whereas my teammates, when you're shorter and more aerodynamic, um, you have to put out less watts. watts. So I had to put out the most watts on the whole team every time I took a pull and every time I was in, you know, in line. So I knew exactly how much I had to produce and exactly what types of foods were fueling that and keeping that at a consistent level, if you will, like consistently being able to put out those watts on the front and days that I could or couldn't and what, you know, what was happening. It was connecting almost everything to my input my nutrition, which before I had just been like a zombie, like I just mm-hmm. ate whatever mm-hmm. was in line at the training center, like you said before, which was pretty nasty stuff. Um, and now, I, you know, it was it was it was like um, 
just so interesting to see all the different plant foods and what would happen. And then, you know, everybody talks about this, but I mean, for me, it was really important to be recovering because I am 39 and a half mm-hmm. and I'm in, a, I'm, I'm, you know, everybody's in a race to recover, right? Because we're, we're only damaging during training. We're and we're only repairing then during rest. And that's when you get stronger. You don't get stronger in training. Um, so for me, that that was my race. The recovery was my race. It's every athlete's race, but mm-hmm. especially as you're getting older. And I had started noticing that my recovery was changing, you know, b- before I had gone uh, plant-based. I mean, it was, it, was, it was deteriorating and I was like, oh, wow, mm-hmm. this is, mm-hmm. I am not feeling like I used to after the six hour rides. Uh, you know, I'm eating the same thing. I'm sleeping the same way, you know. So that that was a, a, a and really, doing the Norma Tech boots and all that kind exactly, of other stuff, right? Exactly, and getting like, massage and yeah. chiropractic. Yeah, it's, it's, it, yeah, I mean, it 24, it's 24 seven, right? You're doing something. I don't miss that part. Like just thinking about yeah. all of that stuff every day, all day long. You're thinking about yourself all day long, every mm-hmm. day. Yeah, it's, it's boring. Well, to be an athlete at that level is yeah. a very self-involved thing. Yeah, completely. You know, it has to be. Um, all right, so then going plant-based, you're noticing an improvement in your ability to recover? That's what yeah. we're gathering from this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, and, that, and that was like in like a couple of weeks. Wow. I mean, that was just so fast where I was like, what? And I didn't, on, to be quite honest, it's not something that I connected at first. I mean, I don't know. It's just stupid. I mean, that's the only thing that I had really changed. Right, but and you, you, just but you came in from an ethical point. You weren't doing this like, oh, I'm exactly. gonna boost my performance. You right. were doing this from an ethical perspective of this is an intolerable system and I'm I'm opting out. I'm opting out. <clears throat> and whatever exactly. happens athletically is gonna happen. Yep. Yeah, and I, I and I and I hope that something good will happen because I feel like by opting out, I'm doing good. I, I mean, I, I you know, then so so maybe 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 something will come from right. this, and and it, it it definitely did. But it was um, it was it was I don't know. It, it, the other thing that's so joyful about it is you know so so many people say when they say oh you know it's hard it's hard to stick to or something like that. To me, it's like. It's such a joy to sit down at every meal and and you're aware that you are choosing conscience over ease, like whatever is just there. Mm-hmm. And it is so uplifting and so fulfilling and such a empowering feeling. Like I feel so strong every time I'm slightly challenged, let's say at like a business dinner and we're like at Ruth Chris, you know, like whatever that happens once a freaking year, who cares? But- Yeah, everyone's worried about that steakhouse Yeah, that one experience (laughs) where, you know, uh, but you know, people are just, people are really nice. And the last experience I had at Ruth Chris, which wasn't that long ago, they- brought in a vegan meal from a restaurant down the street wow. because they knew, uh, so it's because right now you and I aren't that quiet about it. So, and the whole table was like, what are you eating? That looks so delicious. And you're like, well, you just have your little dead animal over there. I mean, it's like, you know, it's because it's just, it's just so, it's so bountiful and so colorful. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's, I, I thought that was just great. They all wanted some. I was like, no, I'm not sharing. I'm very hungry. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Um, when you were when you were in the lead up to London, you said you had a coach who was vegan. I don't know if that was your coach at that time. Yeah, as well, not he was my track coach, but it was okay. my road coach at the time. That yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, it's not just you. You've got these three other women 
right? And so yes. are they going, well, like, you know, you're like, you're going plant-based? Like what, how is that gonna impact I us? Like how did that work? I was vocal about it really. Like mm. for, well, well, by the time I was with them, I was already plant-based. Like mm-hmm. I, I had, that had happened yeah, to- The vocal aspect of what you do is a recent <laughs> development. Because I don't remember For hearing sure. about this during London. Like right. it wasn't like, oh, Dotsie, the, you know. No, yeah, I yeah. didn't do any social media back then anyway. It was like, I didn't even realize it was like, no, no, no. It was like, it was like my husband's and I little, you know, he was, he had gone pescatarian by that point, you know, and, and, and he, so he was like a, right after London, which he did. And I did, and he didn't even tell me. And then like, I'm literally going to Whole Foods, going to see the fish guy, like, I need the fish that you know was just clocked over the head once and it wasn't the one. I mean, this is why I'm going to these links for, for my husband. <laughs> Finally, he just stopped eating them. How did this fish get here? I know. Exactly? Oh my God. The guy was like, and then. Do you have a chain of custody? <laughs> no. He, and he was probably BSing me, but he would do that. I mean, he would like, you know, okay, yes, we're going to go here to this week, the clocked over the head ones that didn't suffer at all are right here and they're the sea bass. And so, I mean, he would. Oh my God. He was, to this day, I'm like, like oh, here she that, comes. That right. yeah. Make your story. Yeah. Like, you're, oh, that's so ridiculous. So ridiculous. But they didn't really, um, yeah, it was just kind of like they just, I just ate what I ate. And, and you, who was freaking out was my track coach, mm. who's um, like a larger, kind of like chubby version of Crocodile Dundee. Like, he's backcountry Australia. And he was like, what? What? This is what, why, why would you do this? You know, like, mm-hmm. why is this a thing what I have to deal with? Um, like it was like putting him out in a way of like this. Right. So, but it did, yeah, it didn't take long for him to be like, oh, okay, this is working. I don't eat whatever you want. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that you know, maybe what you do gets, gets unfairly lumped in with like endurance athlete runner type people, but I think people don't appreciate or understand the amount of power and strength required to perform at that sport. I mean, it's like massive amounts of power, like crazy amounts of strength that you need. Yeah, so the, I mean, just to give a comparison. So on the, um, I did a lot of inverted leg sled work because I needed to lift, uh, move an incredible amount of weight that I was not gonna be able to move doing squats because I would have crushed my upper body. Uh, And I I had a lot of work to do in a short period of time to get up to that strength that we were talking Mm -hmm. about because I'm coming from road cycling. So I went from being able to do about, um, it started at like 250 pounds on the inverted leg sled um, to 585 pounds times 60 reps times five sets Whoa. because my coach had gotten to me where we would almost be the length of the event. So the 60 reps with 585 mm-hmm. pounds on it would, 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 it would take- Approximate um, the, di- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, uh-huh. exactly. And that's a, a pretty obscene amount of weight for yeah. 130 pound female. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, all on plants. Right, unbelievable. So mm-hmm. when people come up to you and they're like, uh, you know, well, do you think you would have done better on a paleo diet, or do you, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like yeah, what kind of crazy questions you have to field, right, to yeah. defend your 
Yeah, position probably the on same this. ones you do. I mean, you know, it's like I, I think. I mean, it changes the longer you're in it, right? There's, I, I in in this movement or, or speaking about this, you know, people people ask people are asking better questions than they than they were before. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also just people are becoming a little bit more educated and more aware, and 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 you know, um, but uh, you know, it's 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 kind of still all the same stuff, right? All, where they, they just people really don't understand not only protein, but they they don't understand iron, they don't understand B12, they don't even understand what B12 is that it's a bacteria and you know mm-hmm. you, where you can get it from they think animals make b12 so there's there's just a lot of misconceptions out there about the different nutrients that 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 they think that you need from the myth that we've been told and lied to about our whole lives um, that you can only get that from animal flesh right. so it's just those you know do you have were you taking supplements or do you have to be eschew those because fear of like contamination, yeah, I know and things like that. <sighs> that was always a scary thing because in in my in my road career, I I was taking um, more supplements than I probably or definitely more than I needed to. Um, being um, completely plant based, I was taking a liquid B twelve that my doctor would prescribe and I would pick up at the pharmacy just so that I knew it was not, didn't have a lot of fillers in it, right? When you just get mm-hmm. them at the store, they have a lot of fillers. So I was taking the B12 and I was taking um, a Whole Foods uh, plant-based iron um, because I I did my best when my iron levels were higher than they would naturally run. Mm-hmm. And when my ferritin levels were higher and my hemoglobin levels were higher. So I would cycle this whole food plant-based iron, which I could easily get from food, but it would be like, you know, a large trough of spinach or something. Easier to control it. Exactly. Exactly. But it was still, um, you know, mega food. So it was still the the plant. Um, And that's it. Just those two no things. No protein powders, yeah. BCAAs, no, well, and all no that BCAAs, kind of stuff. no, none of the amino acids, none of that stuff. Uh-huh. I didn't buy, no way, no. Um, I would do some plant protein every once in a while just because you get, you know, tired of, you have to, I I mean, I was taking in uh, 5,000 calories a day and sometimes more. And so, you know, with ultra endurance, you just get tired of eating. Yeah, I don't really do do protein shakes anymore, but I did back then because it was Mm -hmm. just like, I just want to drink something. I think I'm going to die if I have to eat again because you just, yeah. All right, so 2012, you win the silver medal. Um, You're doing it plant-based but you weren't a mouthpiece for this movement. So between Mm -hmm. then and now you've made this decision to be um, a vocal advocate for these issues. Like what inspired that? And like, how do you think of yourself as a a mouthpiece for these issues that we care about? Yeah, well, you know, I, I didn't, when I came back from London, I didn't know anything. I didn't know there was a, I didn't know there was a movement. This is a theme with you. You're always like, What's going on? Yeah. Where am I? Where am I? I'm <laughs> tipping over on the track. Like I'm doing the AIDS ride on my on my mountain bike. What What's you... happening? I didn't. I had no idea there was a vegan movement. I had no idea there was an animal rights movement. I didn't know about you yet. I didn't know. I knew absolutely nothing. I'm still to the point where I uh, I'm not sharing anything because I don't think there's anyone that cares. Uh, and the the moment happened when my husband came home one day from doing some shopping. He'd been to Native Foods and he saw a little cute group of people meeting. He, it happened to be Mercy for Animals. Mm-hmm. He got a flyer and brought it home. It was like, look, there's like people that talk about what you talk about. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm like, stop it. And I picked up the phone and called Mercy for Animals in Santa Monica and got a hold of Ari Solomon. I'm like, mm. you guys like, like, you like, what, how do you, what do you do? And so 
he said, come up, come up and see us. Let's have lunch. And that was the beginning of mm. recognizing that anybody talks about this and that, that it, it, and, and that people listen to them and actually care and are creating a, a, a pretty large movement of uh, people that give a crap. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, it's amazing as somebody who, who not so long ago didn't even know <laughs> these worlds existed <laughs> that you're having PSAs airing during the Olympics and you've created this um, Compassionate Champs movement. Like, tell mm -hmm. me what that's all about. Um, so I'm learning more and more every day. Uh, but when I started Compassion Champs, it was, uh, it was really, it was kind of more out of a desire to meld together compassion and strength. I felt like there was, you know, no, nobody really um, that, that that was having a real conversation about being able to be uh, caring and compassionate and, and loving and empathetic, but also strong and fierce and badass. And, you know, those, those mm -hmm. two just weren't coming together um, as, as a, as a group of people. So that, that's, that's where it was uh, kind of uh, born out of. Um, I'm learning more and more as I um, am traversing this movement and reading more research and understanding more from being a part of the Game Changers film, which we can talk about. Yeah, I want to talk about um, that. That, you know, people, and, and, and just from my own experience, uh, sadly and, and really disappointing to me is by and large, people don't care about the animals. They just don't. They just, they don't care about the suffering. They don't want to know about it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want you to show them. They don't definitely don't want you to talk about it. And they really don't want you to talk about it when, when you're all eating. Um, but people do care about their health and they do care about their performance, not just athlete, you know, athletic performance. People just care about their general performance and being better in their life, right? A lot of the people that you've had on here. Um, so the conversation that I'm having is, is changing a bit more. Uh, I think it's, I'm almost feeling more like a undercover animal activist <laughs> because it's at the core of what I care about the most. Uh, it's the least effective way to change people's minds. Right, the way to impact people is, is by appealing to what interests them, mm -hmm. not what interests you, right? Such a bummer. And I think that, <laughs> you know, the athlete plays a very interesting role in this movement because what they're able to do with their bodies speaks louder than the words that come out of many a doctor's mouth mm. or many an activist's mouth. Because when someone sees you with a silver medal on, sees you on a podium or sees you on that velodrome kicking ass, it's like, wow, how does that, how does that person do that? I wanna know more about who that person is and what, what inspires them and what fuels them. And telling that story is a way to impact hearts and minds that I think is different yeah and important, you know? And, I, yeah. and that's why I think, um, you know, this Game Changers movie that you're a part of is gonna be a really big deal. Like I haven't seen it yet. I've seen the trailer, but I know it's making a splash. You were at Sundance. You just got back from the Berlin Film Festival. Mm -hmm. um, tell me what it was like to, you know, see that movie, be part of that movie and to participate uh, in, in, in screening it before audiences for the first time. Yeah, it was uh, just a wild pleasure and honor, right? I just uh, feel like, you know, we're kind of at a tipping point of this movement. Um, you know, we're not anywhere near like 
a large percent of the population eating plant-based, but I feel like uh, I'm definitely having outside of the movement, right? We have to take ourselves outside to really recognize, but those conversations are at a much higher level than they used to be. People are at least aware now that they've decided that that's for them or not, maybe not. But um, sc- screening the film at, um, at at Sundance and at the Berlinale in, in, in um, Berlin, which was the international pre- premiere, it was uh, so many different types of people asking all different types of questions. Mm. You know, it was, that's what I loved about it. It was like a wide variety of, 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 of questions that um, not just your typical, like, oh, where are you getting your protein? Well, they cover that in the film. So maybe that's why they weren't asking that. But, um, and, and people's reaction to it was, it's Sundance, it really, really caught me off guard and by surprise. Normally we're used to people saying, oh, okay, this is interesting, plant-based. Okay, I think I might try a recipe or I might try Meatless Mondays or I'm gonna try this. Onslaughts of people. We do the Q&A after the film, right? There's about 15 of us there, the doctors and the, and the athletes. I'm the only female because the other two females, it's a male, very male right, it's focused very, it's, film. There's a kind of a bro heavy. Totally. Thing to it. It, it's very focused on uh, young men because they are the ones that are resistant to change uh, mm-hmm. as far as eating meat and the meat myth. Um, so there's three females in the film um, and the other two are still competing. So I was the only female there. So I just got this rush of women, you know, standing in line to talk about this. And every single one says, I'm starting today. How, what, do I, what do I do for dinner? Somebody else comes up and says, I'm going back to the condo and I'm supposed to cook for 10 people and I have chicken in the refrigerator and I can't serve them that. It's, you know, it, it, it's diseased or, you know, they, they would, they, she would pick out different parts of the movie that she had learned about all of the gnarliness of chicken. And I, I can't in my right mind serve them that. What, what, you know, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh my God, oh my God. No, but cook the chicken, let, <laughs> let, let's start tomorrow. You know, it's like, oh my gosh. It was in a completely different type of, of, of panic almost of these people just, just so moved by what they learned and so moved by the health aspect uh, that they were everyone starting tomorrow. And so I was like, wow, guys, we gotta really be ready for this because Nobody knew that was gonna be the reaction. Mm, yeah, you better have your answer like chambered. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really you exciting. Be able to but... fe- feed them when the inspiration is is at its peak, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah. And what was the what was the response in Berlin? How was it different? Um, it was it was oh gosh, I it, people are a little bit more subdued there. Uh, you know, I just said well, the Germans, Germans are also questioners. They're much more. Yeah. 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 So yeah. we got, I mean, we, yeah, we got, um, there's a part in the film where it kind of goes into uh, tobacco industry and kind of how they were uh, eventually exposed even after there was, you know, 700 studies that says smoking kills you, but they had, you know, kind of kept them all quiet. And uh, the PR firm Exponent that is known for um, hiding big tobacco, hiding a lot of chemicals that are in um, different things that we lotions and things we put on our skin um, and are now spinning big agriculture. So that was uh, very, that was an interesting topic in Berlin. Like a lot of people brought that, what are we gonna do about Exponent? 
Mm. That's not okay, you know. So mm. that that was a little bit like, more. That's a little it, askance of the, the 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 what you were trying to go for. Well, right? yeah, but I mean, it, if you'll you'll see it, it kind of it at least helps people to understand why all of this. Um, how all of this marketing is working, this meat mm -hmm. myth is working in the machine that's behind big agriculture and the spin that every time something comes out, like what we're doing with Switch for Good, uh, if we get big enough, which we better and I hope we will, there'll be some type of exponent, whether it's them or someone else doing a quick spin for big dairy. So that that is, a, it's, a, it's a pretty integral part of the film uh, for people to, to, to understand why they're being told this myth, like where it's coming from and, and, and how much money's behind mm -hmm. that myth. So, um, but, uh, but, but Germany as a whole, and as, especially Berlin, I mean, Berlin is known as the vegan capital of Europe. Uh, so, you know, it was really, uh, people with a uh, very open minds yeah. too at the film, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah, we were talking before the podcast about how amazing Berlin is for vegan food. They have vegans, a full vegan supermarket. And we're like, how come they have that? We don't have that here. Like Unreal. it would crush in I Venice. I thought I was Can in heaven. I yeah, mean, I like, just couldn't get cool. over myself. I <laughs> Wow, it's wild. So what is, is there a release plan for this movie? Like would they have the distributor lined up? Can you talk well, about cool that? Well, the cool thing that... is, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, they don't know yet either. Yeah. So mm -hmm. um, uh, the, the the cool thing is that they're, the distributors are fighting for it. So mm -hmm. they're in a great place, great. a great space to be in. Um, I, I assume in, within the next month, they'll hopefully make that decision of who they're gonna go with. I mean, their, their goal is very much um, eyeballs on the film and, and not, they don't have a monetary goal. Right. Uh, their goal is for, you know, uh, one billion people to see the film, mm. which is lofty. That's, that's uh, a big goal. But it's, it's uh, you know, I, it's, it's certainly possible, yeah. um, if not maybe probable. So they, uh, if you, if you keep, um, up with the website, you know that that'll mm -hmm. t that'll tell uh, gamechangersmovie.com. We'll, we'll we'll tell right. when it's going to be released because I mean everybody is seems you know good things seems to be dying to see it. But I think it'll do some more film festivals too mm -hmm. before uh, yeah. So we'll we'll mm -hmm. see. Yeah, more will be revealed. All right, so we got to wrap this up. But I have one final question. <laughs> is anybody like, still there? I know, no, we're at two hours. We're good. Um, you have this competitive nature. You have retired from cycling. Uh, where are you going to channel this this uh, this energy into this movement? Yes, or wh wh how oh my does God, this, yeah. how do, you know, is that there's there's no question in 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 my mind that uh, I will do this uh, till the day I die. It's it 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 fills every piece of my bursting heart with so much joy and 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 need and fulfillment, and that this is this is revealing the secrets behind this is is very similar to back in the day with tobacco i i feel such a um such an inherent deep need to share truth with people like if if it's not if they're not if they're not being told the truth somebody has to tell them the truth somebody has to you know uncover and and if i can use the olympian thing or the olympics thing that i you know did and fought really hard for, because um, you're right. People, people are interested in what an you know Olympian mm -hmm. eats or what an Olympian does. I mean, it's you know that's part of this you know PSA with the with the seven Olympians. It's like nobody's going. Oh God, 
stupid Olympians, put them in the corner. You know, people just kind of are inherently like, go team. Um, and so that platform uh, will 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 hopefully hopefully allow us to to reveal and uncover these untruths that mm. that people have been. Uh, been told their whole lives from animal agriculture all the way to all the different diseases that the seven top diseases that we're dying from in this country, people are just consuming incredible amounts of dairy while they're fighting prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, incredible amounts of dairy while they're fighting ovarian cancer. It's insane. And so it's, 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 it's the only thing um, besides my relationship with my husband that I care the most about. <laughs> it's, it's, it's everything to me. Well, it's beautiful and it's exciting times. You know, yeah. I think the awareness is getting out there and there is a, there is a <clears throat> you know, a growing interest and re- receptivity right. to these ideas that I, that I think is only gonna build. And, and your role in all of that is, uh, is prominent and growing. So it's awesome to see. Um, one final thing, if you'll indulge me. <laughs> Do you have to go? (laughs) I gotta Um, beat the traffic. (laughs) So uh, I think it would be great to kind of end this with leaving a a few thoughts for somebody who's listening to this, who perhaps is suffering from an eating disorder Mm -hmm. or is stuck in the cycle of, of, you know, a a pattern that they can't see themselves through. So Mm -hmm. is there there a lifeline that you could throw to that person or, or something they could think about or do um, that could perhaps be helpful? Well, there's a couple of things. I think that when you're deep into the disorder, you definitely don't feel like there's ever any way out. Um, and that's especially true with eating disorders because you have to continue to eat, right? Mm-hmm. You can't just be like, okay, no more no more drugs, no more alcohol. Um, I felt so isolated by that. And just letting them know that there truly is a way out once an anorexic, not always an anorexic. It's, it's, it's not the same as it, as, it, as it might be or how many alcoholics look at it and, and for their own recovery. Um, there, there is freedom on the other side. There really is a pathway, whichever pathway you choose to have freedom from it. So many eating disorder sufferers that I met, that's the one thing that they just don't really believe is true. And it is, there really is freedom. And I think the other thing is that most most eating disorder sufferers are fairly type A and they, most that I've met wanna contribute to society. I mean, they, they have a kind of a yearning, kind of a desire. Um, if you let this disease run its course and you die from it, you're not gonna be able to do anything. You're not gonna be able to have an impact on the world and you're not gonna be able to do anything for the greater good. And you're definitely not gonna be able to do anything healthfully for the greater good while you're sick. So allow that to be your bright guiding and shining light out of this. That was uh, a big part of it for for, for me is, is recognizing that I can't do anything if I'm dead, mm-hmm. you know? So let that come to the top of your heart and let that guide you. Um, there, is a, there is a way out and you, you can't do anything for the world if you're dead. Yeah, beautifully put. 
um, and, and raise your hand and make yourself known and find help. Find that person that you feel comfortable talking to that you can confide in. And I think that's an important first step in breaking that cycle of denial and that, that prison that keeps you stuck. Yeah, yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this was awesome. Uh, Dotsie, you're an inspiration. Uh, I really appreciate your time and your testimony yeah, today. Yeah, as well. Uh, it's powerful and I wish you well and keep doing what you're doing. I feel like we're saying goodbye yeah, forever or something. Are, will you come back and talk to me <laughs> yeah. some more tomorrow? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. So if you want to connect with Dotsie uh, at Dotsie Bausch on Twitter and Instagram, compassionchamps.com. Mm-hmm. Vegan Olympian on Instagram. Vegan Olympian. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, I, wait, so it's funny. I type your name in, but then it automatically pulls up Vegan Olympian. So cool. But, it's uh, weird yeah, nobody cool. had that. Right? I know. Yeah, that is weird, right? I only got it like six months that's ago. That's kind of awesome that you have that. <laughs> I know, yes. Um, and it's compassionchamps.com? Um, yeah, compassion-champs.org. Dash, okay, org, yeah. .org. And you yeah. have your own personal website too, right? Yeah. Dotsy Bausch. Yeah, USA. Com. Okay, DotsyBoushUSA.com? Yes. Okay. You got it. All right, cool. All right, well, yeah, please do come back and talk to me again. This was great. Thanks, Richard. We appreciate it. Peace, Lance. All right, that's it. We did it, and it was good. I'm good. Are you good? I hope you're good. Let Dotsy know how this one landed by hitting her up on social at DotsyBoush on Twitter and at Vegan Olympian on Instagram. And please check out the show notes for this episode on the episode page at richroll.com for tons of links and resources to take your edification beyond the earbuds. Once again, the brand new and revised edition of Finding Ultra is now available in the US and Canada. Check it out on Amazon, about 35% brand new material. Super proud of it. Very excited. Would mean so much to me if you would uh, trust me and pick up a copy. And Plant Power Way Italia, our brand new cookbook, is now available for pre-order. You can reserve your copy now. And if you're a female, if you're a woman, make sure to check out the latest post on my blog for a chance to win a free spot on our upcoming retreat in Tuscany, May 19th through 26th, 2018. It's a $5,000 value. The contest is only open through April 24th. So jump on it now. I'm very excited about that. And if you would like to support my work, please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you enjoy this content. Subscribe to my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash rich roll. This episode is up on YouTube as well. All of that really helps with the show's visibility, extending reach and audience, all that good stuff, which makes it easier for me in the future to book the very best people for future shows. You can also support the work that I do on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo, as always, for his wizardry in audio engineering, production, the interstitial music, help with the show notes. You're stepping up, Jason. Good job. I appreciate you. Michael Gibson on videography and theme music, as always, by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. Talk to you soon. Be back here in a couple days. Until then, be well, reach high, and uh, treat yourself well. Be nice to yourself. Be nice to other people. What can I tell you? All right. Peace, plants. Namaste. Yeah.